Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. And tonight we are bringing to you episode forty-three. It is the top five movies of two thousand and four. Uh, one of the reasons, I guess, it's twofold. The reasons that I wanted to do two thousand and four specifically is one, we're here at the fifteenth anniversary of the year, and second, this was a year. The next to last year, you worked at the movie theater. Is that right, Frank? Yes. Yeah. That you worked at Regal, and we saw—I don't know—what what would you estimate that we saw that year in terms of movies? Probably upwards of sixty, I would say. Yeah, I mean, at least one a week, and many times two a week. Right, and sometimes multiple times for the same movie. Yeah, I—I I think that we. I'm pretty sure we saw almost every major motion picture release that year. Yeah, Anything that was like released. every almost every wide release, probably. Yeah. Some really, really, really bad movies. Yeah, that's the Catwoman year, right? Was I think two thousand four. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Alone in the Dark too, or as well. That might be true. Yeah. I don't know. There were so. It's definitely the Perfect Man year and the Wedding Date year, and those were awful experiences. <laughs> I forgot about the Wedding Date. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of things. Anchorman was that year. Uh. Incredibles is that two thousand four? It is two thousand and four. Yeah, yeah. Why is the Incredibles not on this list? Uh, I don't know that I really want to talk about it. <laughs> so it really is just like the fact that I don't like that movie, and you don't. No, no, wanna... no, no, no. I don't. I don't care about that. I mean, oh, okay. made you watch Excalibur. <laughs> um, I don't know that I have a lot that I would want to say about the Incredibles. Is mm. what I mean to say. Gotcha. Like the Incredibles, I I still think the Incredibles, like up until the the MCU, like run a few years later, yeah. is still probably one of the best, like early age, early modern age, like superhero movies. Uh-huh. I think it gets almost everything right in terms of like pacing and plot and the character development, especially for an animated movie. Like it just does it really well. But <clears throat> I think that it would be a movie you could talk about for like maybe. 10 minutes maybe i don't know like i don't know how much you say about it sure and most of that would be like describing the plot i think right um chronicles of riddick was that year we saw that yeah not to take anything away from incredibles incredibles i still think is a really good movie but i just i don't know Ooh, did we see a cinderella story the hillary duff movie i think we did i think we watched i've seen that. that movie yeah i think we watched that after work oh <sighs> uh, collateral was that year why is Collateral's collateral not on this list I don't hold Collateral in the same esteem that a lot of people do. Like, really? I think Collateral is good, but I don't... I, I like all five movies on this list more than Collateral. Okay. For different reasons. This is very much... I mean, these movies are good movies, but this is very much a nostalgia list for me. Yeah. Um, nostalgia for, like, that specific time period, you know, when I was still working in the theater industry and able to watch like any movie I wanted after work. Um, you know, just like it was a easier time in my life and yeah, I have a lot of really no, good It was memories. a really good year that year, like watching all those movies yeah. and stuff. And I, I have really good memories of all these movies. Like I remember the circumstances around like watching these movies. Sure, yeah. Um, I didn't see Collateral with you. I actually didn't see Collateral in the theater. I didn't see Collateral until... I don't think I saw until... Yeah, I don't think we watched it A couple years later theater. when it came yeah. out on video. I bought it on DVD, I think, when everybody used to just buy movies on DVD rather than rent them. Right. At that point, well, that mean, weird time to, in the 2000s. You're at Walmart, and 
you drop like thirty dollars and get like sure. two DVDs. Right. And... Yeah. It was it was a weird time though when you would go back and think about it. Yeah. Like especially considering now with streaming and right <clears throat> now I just spend three ninety nine and watch it and never think about it. Well, I still think about them again, but. <laughs> It's weird, though, because I'll buy stuff now on Amazon once in a while, just to have it forever. Yeah. But, like, I don't want to move DVDs anymore, and, like, when I, like, move houses and stuff, like, that's a lot to take with you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I still have my entire, I still have all my Criterions, because I don't think I'll ever get rid of them. Um, Just because I like, like, that whole, like, the total package of a Criterion collection, like, is really... Yeah. Nice to have. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, that's something worth keeping. Those are like collectors. And I have, I have horror movies and like cult movies that I don't think I would ever get rid of just because of like... Like I have stuff that... I mean, maybe you could find it streaming, but like... Stuff that probably shouldn't even exist, I guess. I don't know. Just like weirdo stuff, but... Like I'm not ever going to go out and buy, I don't know, like Deadpool 2 on dvd or anything yeah whereas at one point i probably would have like bought a movie like that just to have it i saw an article the other day actually i can't remember it's probably some dumb shit like collider or some kind of stuff Mm. but it was actually like pretty a pretty decent argument saying that collateral was actually cruz's best role oh i saw that same article yeah yeah it was vox maybe yeah, it wasn't Vox. I, I don't know. It was, I, I, I don't read anything on Vox. It's <laughs> one of the things to. that pops up in my Reddit feed. It was a link yeah. to it, so I don't remember right. where it was. Dawn of the Dead was that year? The Dawn of the Dead remake? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that movie. What? I liked it at the time, but um, I've seen it since. And it's weird because I like... Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 fine. Dirty Dan... Or not that's not what I was... Havana Nights? Yeah, it was Havana Nights. We didn't watch that though, right? Oh, I watched Havana Nights. Did you? And I had to. Yeah. We did a promotion for it. And I was in charge of promotions <laughs> yeah. at the theater. So we had... We had like a salsa team come in and do like salsa demonstrations. and give really? them free salsa lessons. Huh. And um, they dressed up like the characters in the movie. So mm-hmm. she was wearing like the... The blue dress with like the... Mm-hmm. I, remember I, the I remember the trailer. So yeah. I had to watch Havana Nights just so I would like know about the movie. Yeah, so I read I the wrong title it. off of here, but that's 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 funny that you ended up having to watch <clears> that. Uh, the Day After Tomorrow was one that we watched that that's definitely would be in the bottom terrible. five of the, that year was, probably. Was Sahara this year? I believe so. I'm just kind of scrolling down the list. Dirty Shame we saw in Baltimore. Right. Um, With Waters there, right? Didn't he speak like... Before yeah, he stood up and introduced the movie. Yeah. Um, Dodgeball was that year. We watched Dodgeball's that. Dodgeball's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Door in the Floor was that year. Fuck. <laughs> um, the Door in the Floor. Let's see. I'm skipping over the ones that are on the list here. But uh, Exorcist the Beginning was that year. The Rennie Hart. I've, for as bad as that movie is, I've seen that movie three times. Because, do you remember that, they, so there was controversial because when it came out, um, it was completely reshot. Like, they had to reshoot right. the whole thing. And they released the original cut of the movie directed by whoever the other director was that did it. Right. And it's just as bad. It's just bad in different ways. Yeah. So, I do remember this. And I've seen the original cut of it again. So I've watched that awful movie three <laughs> times in my life. Fahrenheit 9-11 was that year. Which we stayed after and watched. Yeah, there's nothing to say about that. No, no, no. Uh, we didn't watch Finding Neverland, did we? 
I've seen Finding Neverland. Yeah, no, I mean at the theater. I, I saw it in the theater. Did you? Yeah. I don't think I stayed for that. It was boring. It was fine, I guess. I don't know, whatever. That was back when people still considered Johnny Depp to be like a capable actor and not a friggin' like lunatic weirdo. Uh, the Forgotten was that year. Oh my God, that was that long ago. Did you, did you watch? You didn't watch that with us. I think that was a Monday Night Movie Club no, thing with me and Ryan. I, I watched that on DVD or yeah. whatever. Actually, I think I got it from Netflix. Yeah, I'm not even thinking about that. Is this was also like the heyday of um, Orion, who's been on the podcast before um, with the big sleep drinking game. Uh, that was that was the heyday of like Monday Night Movie Club too, right. where Orion and I would go mon- every Monday and pick the we would look at the list and pick the worst movie that we thought was what we thought was going to be the worst movie, and you would get us free tickets. Yep, Godsend. Got yep, got so Godsend was that year. Yeah. Oh, Friday Night Lights was that year. Yeah, that movie's fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's just weird. Um, hmm, I would have thought that would have been earlier. There was something else that I just thought of. Was Kingdom of Heaven that year? Uh, I think that's very possible, yeah. I'll, I'll see when I get to the case. I, here. So I there's Godsend, not... The Girl Next Door. Um, oh, right, the comedy with... Um, yeah. Eli- Elisha Dushku, was that? No, no. No, Kuzbert. Right, Elisha, Elisha Kuzbert. Kuzbert. Yeah. Uh, the Grudge was that year. The Sarah Michelle Geller. Terrible. Uh, Harold and Kumar was that year? Really? Mm-hmm. I remember that. I don't yeah. think you guys stayed after and watched it. I did it not, us. no. Uh, Prisoner of Azkaban was that year. And I was all pissed off over the fact that it was blue. Right. That's the one that's directed by um, the guy that did uh, E2 Mama Tambien, right? Is that right? Um... Quran? Alfonso Cuaron, yeah, 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 uh-huh. yeah, that just had Roma this year, yeah. Which is weird because, like, I I love him as a director. Like, Roma is a really, really good movie. I hate. I, I think Prisoner of Azkaban is my least favorite it, yeah, Harry I, Potter movie. Agreed. Yeah, it does that. Um, uh, Sam Raimi, um, first person like Evil Dead thing. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what it is. There's something chasing them around a room or whatever, and it does it. It's yeah. just way too hyper stylized and. Would, oh, all the things that people love about that movie are things that make me not like it. Yeah. Like, I'll take the boring, like, plotting Chris Columbus, you know, Harry Potter's over that one. Yeah. Abso- oh, absolutely. No. Those are really classically done. Hotel Rwanda was that year. Mm, that's a good movie. Um, I Heart Huckabees was that year. I, Robot, which Butso apparently is trying to give away a DVD copy of. No, no, no. That's a... It's a book. Oh, is it a book? Oh, it's a novelization. It's the novelization. Oh, okay. With, the cover. with just the cover for the right. Oh, okay. That's some inside information. Yeah. <laughs> it's because we're getting like a stream of text messages from right. our friends, right? Like constantly because they just wait until Friday night to like <laughs> text inanities at it. And then other. Frank's too lazy to change, uh, take off his vibration on his phone. So that's that's what that is. Is our friends texting? If you can hear it. <laughs> That's they can is. hear it. Um, I can hear it when I listen back to it. Uh, Jersey Girl was that year? I don't remember that movie. That's the Kevin Smith, the the, the poorly oh, reviewed gross. Kevin Smith. Yeah, right. Yeah, that movie's bad. Uh, King Arthur was that year. That's a bad movie. <laughs> that I fell asleep for. That was a Money Night Movie Club movie, uh, and I fell asleep for about half of it. Woke up. They were in like an ice area 
And I remember like turning to Raya's like, what the hell's going on in this movie? And then I fell back to sleep for until like the last 10 minutes. That's a bad movie. I hate that movie. Yeah. Uh, Kinsey was that year. Uh, that movie's fine. Try to watch there for the fact, but not in the theater with you. Lady Killers we saw in the theater. Everybody hates that movie. It's you, pretty bad. Yeah, no, you you hated it when you came out. It was disappointing yes. because I think that you were like I was really expecting. Like I don't know that. I mean, aside from my personal hatred of Raising Arizona, I don't know if there was like any Coen Brothers movie I hadn't liked up to that point. So it was really sure. Yeah. Um, series of unfortunate events was that year. Yeah, it's not we saw that in the theater. Oh, a little black book was that year. That's crazy. She died so young. Who was that? Uh, Brittany Murphy. Oh, right. Man on Fire was that year. That movie's fine. Yeah, Manchurian Candidate remake was that, that year. Not fine. It was really, yeah, it was really bad. I, I don't, even, I, I remember so little of that movie. I don't even remember that it was Denzel that was. In I, I'd like to do like a worst of two thousand. Yeah, it was. It, there's, yeah, because it's, it's, it's a ripe. Ripe crop. What's Mean Creek? That feels like something I watched. You watched Wolf Creek. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Mean Girls was that year. Mean Girls is a good movie. Which we saw in the theater. Um, Meet the Fockers was that year. There's so many like movies. Like Even if they're not good, they're like well-known. Like It's weird that Meet the Fockers was that year because like I feel like that movie is like 20 years old. Yeah, right. Of course, I guess it's 15 years old, sure. so it's not yeah. too far off. But... Uh, that Pacino Merchant of Venice came out that year. Mm. I don't know if that's something they would have gotten at Regal. We no. never, no, we didn't have it. Uh, Million Dollar Baby was that year. I hate that movie. <laughs> I know. Okay. That You know, that's another good list. Like, least deserving Oscar winners. Did I mention that Crash was this year? Was Crash is 2014? Did I forget like to mention Crash? Did I just like skip over because I didn't want There's you to lose two. your mind? Yeah. Crash was like December though, right? I can't remember. It, yeah, it doesn't have it on this list that I'm looking at. The Motorcycle Diaries was that year? Yeah. That's 15 years old? That's crazy. Uh, that's another um, one that I feel like it's like 20 years old. What's Mr. 3000 with Bernie Mac in it? Did we watch? It's about a baseball player that... We watched that. Uh, you might have watched it with Orion. Maybe. I don't think I've seen that movie. Okay, that might have been money. He's like close. inching towards 3,000 hits. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. And then yeah, something... I, I've seen this movie. Yeah. Something happens. I don't know. Mysterious Skin, that was that year? That was like Jersey Gordon-Levitt, like indie movie. Uh, the Notebook was that year? Early that year, yeah. Yeah. Ocean's 12 was that year? Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. Palindromes was that year. Oh, Jesus, that movie. Paparazzi, is that something that you and I, that we watched, or was that a Money Night Movie Club thing, probably? What's it about? Uh, I can't remember. It was like a like a thriller, like Cole Hauser was in it, if you remember that dude. I remember Cole Hauser. Um, and it's like some kind of thing where it's like he's being like, he was a paparazzi and he takes a photo or something, and then people want his photo, I think, like. Some kind of bad thriller, right? I remember that movie. Yeah, I think we watched it after. Yeah, yeah. I think we knew it was going to be bad. Passion of the Christ was that year. Jesus. Yeah, right. I mean, literally. <laughs> the Phantom of the Opera, um, the Gerard Butler one was that year. Polar Express was that year. Ugh. Hey. Primer was that year. 
Primer's fine. Uh, the Thomas Jane Punisher was that year. Was closer 2004? I think that's 2005. I'll go back and look here in a second, but I think it was 2005. Ray was that year. Ray, Ray's, Ray's okay. Uh, Saved was that year. We saw that. That's a funny movie. Yeah. Saul was that year. Ugh. Now that we have like what? Like a, probably like nine sequels to it or something. Uh, yeah. Eight or nine. Yeah. Scooby-Doo 2 was that year. <clears throat> uh, Secret Window was that year. That doesn't feel like it's 15 years old to me. Again, that's Johnny Depp doing like actual like acting. That's Secret Window, right? It's Johnny Depp. I would not call it actual acting. It's the one that's based on the Stephen King story. It is, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. From, um, is it Nightmares and Dreamscapes? Or... I think so. Yeah. Right, but what I'm saying is he's not like doing his like 18-year run as Jack Sparrow with... Oh, there's elements of that there. There's like there's a scene that is filmed that he grabs like a something out of like the, uh, uh, the space in between the seats in a car and like reaches in and grabs it and he sits there and snatches it like real quickly. Like he kind of creeps in with his hand and it snatches it real quick and it's completely Hunter Thompson. Like it's it's the same, it's Raul Duke and mm. Fear and Loathing. Like he's still doing the same shit. She Hate Me is that year. Shrek 2 is that year. Mm. Shrek 2 is a good movie. Sideways is that year. Do not like Sideways. <laughs> Sky Captain is that year. Oh, man, what a disappointing movie. Soul Plane is that year. So is Spanglish. <clears throat> yeah. uh, Spider-Man 2 is that year eh. There's, uh, I fucking hate Spider-Man 2 yeah I don't like it either Starsky and Hutch is that year the Step for Wise remake is that year we saw that in the theater that's right. the Nicole Kidman one right yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that movie's bad Super Size Me is that year uh, t- Taxi is that year do you remember Taxi that's we, the Queen Latifah yes, movie yeah, Jimmy Fallon movie terrible. yeah it's really bad Team America is that year. Oh, yeah. The Terminal is that year. Jesus, Terminal is like an interminable movie. <laughs> Troy is that year. Yeah. We saw that. Uh, Van Helsing is that year. Look, I like Van Helsing. You like it ironically, though. No, I think I like no, it. No, you like it ironically. You've explained why you like that movie, and it's because it's, you think it's funny. It is funny. It is. Isn't it supposed it, to be? No. Oh. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, the it's Village a, is that year? Oh, I like The Village a lot. That's a polarizing movie. It is. Uh, Walking Tall remake is that year? Oh, that's actually a pretty decent movie. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Mooseport is that year? I don't know that movie. Yeah, you do. Ray uh, Romano, Gene Hackman. Right, I don't care to remember it. <laughs> White Chicks is that year? Ugh. The Whole Ten Yards is that year. Ugh. Do you remember watching that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we did not watch Win a Date with Tad Hamilton, did we? Yeah, I've Are seen you... that in the theater. We might have, because weren't we like Topher Grace Marks thinking he was going to like actually like break through to like actually be like a real actor Maybe. at one point? Pretty I was sure really excited when he got cast in um, Spider-Man 3, actually. I was thinking right. like, man, maybe this is like this dude's... The Woodsman was that year? What was it? The Woodsman? The Kevin Bacon release from jail pedophile movie. I've never seen that. Mm. So what were you asking about closer? Let me go back up here and look. I think that's 05 though, if I remember correctly. Uh, no, closer was that year. 2004. Yep. I just missed it. 
So yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of movies that are really well known like that year. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, but yeah, like I was I, the Alfie remake that year with Jude Law. Uh, did I miss the Cellular? Was that year too? I missed Cellular. Uh, Blade Trinity as well. I missed. What did you ask me about Alfie? Uh, Alfie is that year, yeah. yeah. Talk about oh Alexander was that year too. I forgot about that. The failure Oliver Stone right movie. Fucking Alfie is one of the worst. I like the original Alfie well enough, mm-hmm. and I was actually really excited. Fifty first dates that year too for Jude Law to play Alfie, and that movie is so bad, so bad. Yeah, it's not good at all. Mm. But yeah, I just I. I you know, at this point, what was I like? I was, uh, you know, 23, 24. And like you said, it was like easier times, like less responsibility and stuff like that. And right. just like hanging out. And then I guess you don't work there anymore, so it doesn't matter. But it's like the idea of like being able to like go after work, like when everything was like done for the night and like we would be at like one o'clock in the morning starting a movie and be able to smoke in the theater right and bring snacks bring, from wawa right yeah like stop at wawa yes oh my god it was so good it was nice yeah um plus that was that was like the pre like current cinema revolution of like the assigned seats and the reclining mm-hmm. seats and like you didn't ever want to go and see a movie during normal hours because you had to contend with like right yeah selling out and yeah overselling and Sitting next to weirdos and absolutely, and our theater was kind of run down at the time too because it was. That's like five years after the retrofit, and like the carpet was starting to stink, and I don't know, but it was it was a good time like watching movies after work, definitely. So, um, out of the top five movies of that year, uh, was there anything out of the we just discussed that came close to making it that wasn't on there? So I thought about putting closer on there because I like closer. Um, I thought about Shrek 2 because I really like that movie. Um, there was something else that I, I think I had on the list and then I didn't put it on there. Let me look at my, cause I keep notes like as I'm like going through movies of the year and try and think about, um, Shaun of the Dead. I thought about putting on there cause I like it a lot. Um, I thought about putting Before Sunset on there. That's 04. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wimbledon came really close. I think Wimbledon's a really good, um, like, psychological thriller. Yeah, I remember like uh, Wimbledon. Yeah. Hotel Rwanda, Aviator, Bride and Prejudice, all those movies. Yeah. I really liked a lot. Um, but again, like, this was more about, like, nostalgic emotional resonance than it was just yeah. about what are better movies. And there's things like, like, I think Aviator's a good movie, and I think that's, like, a great DiCaprio performance, but it's just too long, and it's like... Sure. I don't know. Yeah. Like, everything that didn't make the list. It's like, yeah, because, like, Hotel Rwanda is a really good movie, but it was something, like, I didn't want to watch it again. You know? Like, I was yeah. thinking about it, and I'm like, I don't want to. I don't know. Right. It always comes, it, it often comes down to that, where it's more about, like, what what excites me the most to watch again when I'm thinking about, like, what's going to be on these lists, and what do I think, like, man, like, I could watch that movie because I all all five of these movies are ones that I've watched multiple times and mm. I still enjoyed all five of them. Yeah. Some to lesser degrees, I think, than maybe mm. the last time I saw them. But you know, they were all good and they were all yeah. enjoyable. Okay, you want to jump in? Then we're about twenty five sure. minutes into the show, right? So, um, 
First on your list, number five uh, of the top five movies of 2004, is Napoleon Dynamite, directed by Jared Hess, starring John Heater in his first major role. John Kreese, Tina Majorino, and Efren Ramirez. Has a 71% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 74% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much? Um, so this movie was a complete surprise, I think, to both of us. It was. Um, some people that, so, you know, working in the movie theater, you work with a lot of like teenagers and people just outside their teens. Um, but almost everybody you work with is between like 16 and 21 years old. So this is one, I think, I think it was an MTV pictures production. Maybe it was, um, and back when like MTV actually still like meant something, (coughs) pardon me, um, so I was told like how funny it was and I didn't believe them. And then we just happened to like, okay, like let's, let's sit here and watch it. Um, and completely surprised by how funny I thought it was. Uh, so basically it's, that's the story of Napoleon dynamite. Who's this socially awkward, like nearly autistic, like 16 year old, like nerd who lives with his grandma and his like 30 something year old brother, um, and goes to high school. um, I mean, he's got all kinds of weird, you know, idiosyncrasies, like the way he speaks specifically, but like he draws pictures of fantasy creatures and he really has like no general concept of like social mores or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's the story of him. Basically, his his grandmother is like portrayed as this like wild, like vivacious woman. She breaks her cockix. And they have to stay, they have to be babysat by, um, his uncle Rico. Uh, so that's like generally like the, the gist is uncle Rico there. And then Napoleon, like meeting people and trying to go through high school, I guess. Um, and the friends that he makes you him, Deb, who's this girl that he'd be, he'd be friends. And Pedro, who's another guy that's kind of a social outcast that he'd be friends. Um, culminating with. Pedro winning the high school election and Napoleon like doing this ridiculous dance performance um, and reconciling with Deb because Rico like messes up his relationship with Deb after he suggests that Napoleon said that she should get like breast enhancement, <laughs> whatever. Um, really like subversively funny and full of jokes that are almost like non-jokes, but things that are said in such a way where, even, especially the first time you see it, like, it's just like the use of language just catches you off guard and like the delivery of things. Um, you know, Bill, Bill Hader in that role just channels this. John Hader. John Hader, sorry. Channels this ridiculous, like, awkward... I don't even know how to describe it. Just so uncomfortable, but like so endearing at the same time. Like there's no, it's this weird fine line where like there's movies that have characters like this. I'm trying to think of another good example where the character's like a weirdo kind of like, 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 like a Tom Green movie or something, you know, mm-hmm. like where yeah. it's somebody who's like weird and like Polly Shore maybe. Yeah. Cause Polly Shore is more of like a bro. Type character. I mean, he's he's like he's a burnout. 
I, I wouldn't count stuff like Dude, Where's My Car and Harold and Kumar. Like, those characters are okay. like stoners. I mean, Napoleon is a guy that's drawing, like, bad pictures of, like, girls and thinking that he's making, like, art and, like, talking right. about his skills. Like, that's yeah. one of the... The funniest through lines of the movie is how you have to like you have to like enhance your skills. You have to like you have to skills to impress people. Yeah, and it's like jumping over like a three inch like ramp on your bike yeah. or fake karate or yeah. you know being able to draw and milking cows. Like that's one of the things is they get a job in a farm mm-hmm. and like become like really like they win an award or whatever from like the American Dairy Association. Right for like their tasting and like being able to know what the problem is. Yeah, and like. Stuff. Something that nobody actually cares about, right. but it doesn't ever try to pretend to be like a real look at like the high school experience. So you look something like Mean Girls, and Mean Girls is obviously parody, but it still mm-hmm. is kind of like, or like Can't Hardly Wait, or what's the Taming of the Shrew? Um, Ten Things I Hate About You. Oh, okay. Like all those like teen comedies that are set in a high school that try to, she's all that like try to emulate like somewhat of the high school experience um, in like a stylized way. This is like David Lynch, like is making a high school movie kind of Mm -hmm. feeling where like, there's no real clear idea of like the time frame because it's all very like anachronistic in the sense of there's old technology mixed with current technology. And, you know, the internet plays like a part in it, but then, you know, their their styles and their clothing is all very old right um kind of predates like the hipster like thrift store um explosion in like the mid to late 2000s where people were all wearing like old clothes like the fucking macklemore song like you know like finding like some sweater that some guy wore in like 1970 and like trying to wear it on ironically but unironically as like a fashion statement and again like the use of language is just really funny like the line, so, you know, Deb comes to the door and she's selling her jewelry and Napoleon's talking to her and she, Napoleon's like, you know, why are you doing this? And she's like, well, I'm trying to save money to put myself through college. And just this disembodied Kip voice from the background, your mom goes to college. And it's just like, like, that's not even funny. Right. But when he says it and like her reaction and Napoleon's reaction of just that slight mouth ajar huge upper lip protruding like teeth like coming down like little chiclet face that he makes yes that's just like absolutely almost like submoronic but like he's not stupid he's just has no social grace whatsoever um or like oh, my, my my favorite line i think in the whole movie is you know when they're first talking when he's talking to uncle rico and rico's talking about how like he used to be a high school football star he's like I could throw a football over those mountains. Mm-hmm. And it's just like the most ridiculous claim in the way mm-hmm. he says it. It's just hilarious. Yeah, Uncle Rico is like, I mean, there's there's some uncomfortable stuff in that movie with Uncle Rico, but it's like right. he's still my favorite character. Purposefully probably. uncomfortable. Like, oh, absolutely. They knew what they were doing. Right. I, yeah, sure. He's meant to be a creep, but not so creepy that you can't. You, you're fine with him being redeemed by the end of the movie. Right. And kind of learning his lesson and getting back together with his girlfriend. And and it's... it's Even though it deals with, like, bullying and people being different and accepting people for who they are, it's never mean-spirited about it, which I think I also like. That, like... 
Well, because like the I, I love the 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 male like if there's a villain in it like the the, the jock yeah the boyfriend of with the blonde summer yeah, or whatever. Uh, yeah the 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 Haley Duff mm-hmm. you know character's uh, boyfriend because he's he's not a good actor really but he's like just he's so over the top the way right. that he like does everything including like rolling his eyes like at one point where it's like. I, I, I love the performance just because it is so over the top. Uh, but yeah, it's a cartoon. It's a, it's a cartoon like villain. It's not. It's not even a simulation of what high right. school is actually like because it's just. Uh, and they, they don't colors. use profanity like Napoleon's idea of profanity is like the gosh, right. gosh, yeah. like yeah. my tots. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. It, there's. It's I don't know. It's just so. I, I love movies that feel like they take place in, like, some out-of-joint universe that doesn't actually exist. And there's so, like, because, you know, it's obviously set in the real world, but there's so many, like, small things that make it feel... Like, movies like um, Pleasantville try and, like, affect that, or, sure. like, The Truman Show or whatever. That, like, slightly off-kilter thing that makes you... Kind of like early Coen Brothers would do it, or in Tim Burton, maybe, like, um, mm. Edward Scissorhands-esque, mm-hmm. like... It's just like a slight shift from what you normally know, but Napoleon Dynamite does it in such an amazing way. And it's really entertaining and it's got a good message and it's got, you know, like the feel good ending isn't Napoleon and Deb like kissing and becoming prom king and queen. It's that they're playing fucking dodgeball with right. um the promise playing in the background or whatever, yeah. like that went in Rome song. And it's just like, that's just it's wholesome and it's yeah, but it's still funny yeah. and it's still kind of subversive even in its wholesomeness. Yeah. So I don't know. Like I, yeah, you I know thought, that I'm not the biggest fan of comedies, right? Even though I like I like to laugh and I like things that are mm-hmm. funny. Like it's really difficult for me to like really invest in a comedy. Yeah. Especially you're actually much more likely to watch something that's a sitcom than you are like a comedy movie. That's true. I do enjoy sitcoms mm-hmm. more. Right. I think because like I don't think a joke can stretch most times for like an hour and a half mm-hmm. to two hours. I think 22 minutes is the perfect capsule for a joke. And like most sitcoms, there's one cent like even though there's like all kinds of jokes happening, there's one central thing that's the joke. Sure. And that's why I don't like stuff like Big Bang or How I Met Your Mother. Yeah. Because they're trying to stretch one joke over like 10 seasons. But I mean, right, like I get it after the first yeah. episode. Right. You know, at least like Seinfeld, it was always different scenarios. Yeah. And even though there was recurring, like, through lines in terms of, like, the way the characters behaved mm-hmm. and even, like, certain recurring, like, stories and whatnot. Sure. It was like, here's your Soup Nazi episode. It's 22 right. minutes long. Yeah. That's, that's, the joke's over. Right. But, I mean, I think Napoleon Dynamite works in a really weird way as, like, a high school movie. Um, and I, I don't know. I just, like, I laughed so much. Mm-hmm. And, like, we, we came out of that and I was so amazed by how much. Well, you actually had seen it before me. You you stayed after after they told you it was good, and then you told me like, "Oh yeah, you need to come and watch." You this need movie. to come watch this, and I think you watched it again the next night, and you and I watched it. Yeah, that is true. It was and in, then uh, we watched it again, right? Like a week later or something like that. So I saw it. I know I know I saw it twice in the theater, and then um, <clears throat> I watched it once on DVD when it came out on DVD. Yeah, yeah I own it on DVD. So like, I haven't watched it since '05, is my guess. I watched it with Frankie in, like, maybe 2011, 2012. Yeah. And, uh, oh, pardon me. Um, I don't know that he necessarily got the joke, 
But mm-hmm. I also think that... Different time periods. Right, I think part of the joke is the fact that, like, it is, like, even though, again, like, it, it doesn't take place in any, like, definable era, mm-hmm. it's stuff like the glamour shots and yeah. just, like, the school lunch stuff and, like, all those things, like, kind of make you feel... Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's written, it's written by guys that are recounting a guy that they knew in the 80s. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't know early nineties. Yeah. There's like a specific person that they like had in mind for the, uh, like who they're based kind of based Napoleon off of. Um, I mean, I think he's an aggregate, but it's like, there's one person specifically and they, they were in school in like the late eighties, early nineties. So <clears throat> a lot of that is that, but they still said it in 2004 and I don't, I don't know why that is. Cause it definitely is 2004 that it's supposed to take place. Right. And I also, I mean, I, I guess you can just see it as like almost like because of where they're at in the country, it's kind of backwards. Yes. Yeah, because like in like oh four, right? he's still paying per minute for the internet. You know, right. where it's like even around here, which is like this is the, one of the more rural counties, um, or at least parts of it in in Maryland. Um, we still had we had high speed internet right, back then. Absolutely by oh three, maybe yeah. maybe yeah. maybe even before that. Right, maybe even before that. No, definitely before that, because we had it, I had high-speed internet at um my apartment when Frankie was born, so, 01, yeah. and I had had it yeah. for a while at that point. Sure. Yeah. Um, right, right. But, so, yeah, I, okay. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah, our, my dog is hanging out with us tonight, so, uh, hopefully she doesn't chew her bone like she did. Huh. Which you month couldn't ago, hear, apparently. Months ago. Yeah, apparently you couldn't hear it. Um, I mean, I think we all knew, like, a Napoleon Dynamite type person. I mean, not to, like, that extreme. But there was always, like, kids in the school that you didn't really talk to. And they kind of kept to themselves. And they were sort of sullen. And they had, like, weird little idiosyncrasies. Right. And, like, this is just more of a... Like, it's like celebrating that character as opposed to, like, mocking it or, you know, making him the butt of jokes. So your big complaint is, like, mostly the LaFonda storyline, um, both in, I guess, the sense of, like, it's almost, like, racist caricature of... Yeah, I thought I thought it held up except for that, I thought was, um, I, I, at the time, I guess, I don't think I thought it was really funny at the time, like, that much, especially, like, the stuff, like, dressing him up, like... yeah. Um, in, in his quote unquote his, like black right. clothing, uh, but it's an urban makeover, I think, is what they call it. In the yeah, movie. that's right. And um, but watching it today, I it really the whole thing rubbed me the wrong way, and I thought that they really just kind of minimized that Lafonda character to just be this joke of making her look. She was just a prop to, like, make the whole thing look so obnoxious about her height and, like, you know, the fact that, like, you know, fairly attractive woman versus this nerdy-looking... Weird, pale... Pale, you know. Guy that's on the internet constantly. And it's just an exaggeration, like, of this, like, internet couple now. And then the fact that, like, she, yeah, does this urban makeover on him and stuff like that. And then he starts, like, affecting, like like certain like vocal mannerisms and stuff like that. Right. I, I, it, it's just really uncomfortable. I mean, I like, think I, and not funny. 
right. at all. I, I agree with that. I, I think the intent is that she's from Detroit, I think, right? So here's like this so, big yeah. city, mm-hmm. like modern person coming into this weird, right. you know, isolated community. And it's just, she's like a fish out of water. But she also, her personality just like changes, not changes Kip, but like modernizes Kip. Right. The only thing that's related to her that I still think is funny is um, the wedding at the end when Kip is singing his uh, singing his vows always and forever song like that. Yeah. That still makes me that's laugh. that's appropriately uncomfortable. Yeah, and um, I mean the, the only like saving grace to some degree of that storyline is when her family is there, and I think it's her brother is sitting there just with his hands like or his head in his hands, just shaking his head at like the the fact that she's marrying this guy. Right. Um, so at least like there is some acknowledgement that this whole thing is like ridiculous, but yeah, that's just, I, I don't know. I just didn't like it today. And like, it really rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. Although I think everything else in the movie, like I know that there's like people that really just, dis- I mean, this is a really polarizing movie. People either love it or hate it. Yeah. And, uh, there's a lot of talk about like the way that Napoleon is portrayed uh, because really it's like he is kind of what people would say he's on the spectrum. Right. Um, and that like going back 15 years later, or like 10 years later and looking at it, that um, the portrayal, like they don't like that portrayal of it. I watched it again with that a little bit in mind and I didn't necessarily, I still thought it was a positive message and... He's the hero of the movie. Absolutely. And it's it's his obsession about things and which is what makes him learn how to dance right and and then there's bravery of him going up in front of the school and doing that dance to can heat to save his friend to save his friend right you know so it's like it's for someone who's a very selfish character most of the time in napoleon uh, very often it's like about what he wants or what he thinks right he does it to save his friend and, and, you know, potentially it could go all wrong and he could be embarrassed by the whole thing. Although I don't know how much embarrassment Napoleon really feels deep down, but, but he does it to help his friend. And I, I don't know. I think it's like a really like heartwarming story yeah. still. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. Ebert, um, Ebert gave it one and a half stars. Yeah. And he says, we can laugh at comedies like this for, for two reasons because we feel superior to the characters or because we pity or like them i do not much like laughing down at people which is why the comedies of adam sandler make me squirmy in the case of napoleon dynamite i certainly don't like him and then the movie makes no attempt to make him likable truth is it doesn't even try to be a comedy it tells a story and we are supposed to laugh because we find humor the movie pretends it doesn't know about Watching Napoleon Dynamite, I was reminded of Welcome to the Dollhouse, Todd Solondz's brilliant 1996 film, uh, where an unpopular junior high school girl, um, uh, blah, blah, yeah, but that film was informed by anger and passion, and the character fought back. Napoleon seems to passively invite ridicule in his attempts to succeed, have a studied indifference, as if he is mocking his own efforts. That's a weird read, and especially, like, relating it to Welcome to the Dollhouse, because... She's not successful at the end of that movie. I mean, she's... Right. Even if you feel bad for Dawn, like, throughout the movie, like, I it, it almost is like a mirror to that. But, like, a foil in that way, in that, you know, she gets up in front of everybody to talk about, like, 
her sister being found and like they're throwing stuff at her and mocking her and right. like him like he wins over the school i mean it's mm-hmm. the complete opposite sure i don't know i, mean, I don't know. Yeah. i mean it, it's definitely weird humor and it's like I like mean, i used to like the state on mtv mm-hmm. and like a lot of people don't like the state yeah or like kids in the hall is the same way we're mm-hmm. like Either you get the joke and the joke is really funny or you just sit there and like, what am I watching? And right. it's not funny at all. Yeah. And like, I understand people not liking it. Yeah. And I think Ebert's at an age where he couldn't maybe get this kind of humor. Right. Probably at that point. But, but I thought it was interesting that he, I mean, I mean, I think he's right. Napoleon's not likable, but I think that's, it's like, I think the idea is that you... That you don't really like Napoleon that much, but you grow to kind of respect Napoleon in some ways, even if you don't still right. like him at the end. Like, right, because you like Pedro and you like Deb. Right. Yeah. That's who you're supposed to like. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, any final thoughts on this movie? No, I mean, I think it still holds up. I think it's still fun to watch, and it's it still made me laugh watching it again. Okay. All right, so number four on the list is Garden State. Uh Written directed by Zach Brafe, uh, also starring Zach Brafe, uh, has Natalie Portman in it as well, Peter Sarsgaard, Ian Holm, 86% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 88% from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about this movie and uh, what you still like about it? Uh, so Brafe plays the main character, Andrew Largeman, who's like a C-list actor in Hollywood who... Um, played the retarded quarterback, right? They say, yeah. yeah, that's what's brought up all the time, right? Um, in like a made-for-TV movie one time, disaffected, numb, you know, overly medicated guy, uh, just sort of drifting through life, um, has to fly home from Hollywood back to Jersey for the funeral of his mother, who's passed away. Uh, you find out later that the mother has been paralyzed for the majority of his life. I guess like 16 years or something like that. Yeah. 17 years um, because of an accident that he caused when he was nine. Um, Over the course of like the few days that he's in town for the funeral, he reconnects with some people he went to high school with, um, meets this quirky, like beautiful woman that they fall in love and they, he learns to like open himself back up to life and he stops taking the medicine and he starts to feel things again and basically like finds his true love and that's, you know, reconnects with his father, reconnects with his friends, like finds like a purpose and, um, it's a, it's, it's a good romantic comedy. I love this movie when it first came out and this is another one that I think, I don't know if you and I saw it multiple times in the theater, but I definitely watched it. We saw it, it twice, like, together in the theater. Yeah, I definitely had to watch it with other people, too. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think at the time, like, so 2004, I was 27. Right. Um, and I think at the time, I sort of felt like a connection, because that's the age of this character. He's 26, and, mm-hmm. you know, I was... Um, like recently split up with, with Frankie's mom and mm-hmm. sort of just kind of like drifting through things. So I think like 
you know, you get that, the coin phrase is what is it, manic pixie dream girl or something mm-hmm. element where like, oh, here's this perfect woman that like understands you and has good tastes in things and like is really positive and, you know, you sort of feel like that's something that you want as well. And it's going to save you. Right. And it'll <clears throat> say like, it'll right. fix like all of your, yeah. or at least put you on the right path to fixing all your problems sure. and that they're doing it for you by like helping you open up. Um, watching it this time and it's been like maybe four or five years, maybe a little more since I've seen this movie. I mean, maybe I, last time I watched this movie was like 2012, honestly. Um, I don't really like Largeman that much. Like the Zach Brave character, mm-hmm. like, I find his disaffectedness to be just a little off-putting through the majority of the movie. And I guess maybe that's on purpose, but I think you really are supposed to sympathize or empathize with this guy. And like, you know, I think the Natalie Portman, I, I think Natalie Portman gives a great performance and I think that she's a really charming character, but she's very one note. Like there's not a whole lot of complexity to that. And so she really is just like a plot device to help, you know, this dude, like, fix his life. Right. Um, you said this the other night, and I thought it was actually, like, a really brilliant comparison, that uh, the Skarsgård character um, is basically the Jesse character from Breaking Bad, but, like, three steps lower. Yeah. And to me, he's the most interesting character in the entire movie. And unexplored, too, unexplored really. But it, you could tell that Braith likes him. Yeah. Like, that character... Because he does give him a lot of nuance and like good character moments, I think. Right. But there's still like a lot left unexplored that you that you don't know, and it's almost like I want to see a movie with him when I'm watching it. And right. Like what's going on with that character? Right. I would like to see like because you know he's got these unrealized dreams and he's got these unrealistic expectations for like right selling his desert storm <laughs> trading cards right to like but, live on later in life but the thing is it's like watching it again that i noticed with that character like that specific scene about the desert storm trading cards is like he really he really believes they're going to be collectibles but he knows he's making a joke when what somebody stole my wolf blitzer right like he knows that's funny when he says it like he knows it's absurd and he still believes that what he's saying about them being collectibles. Right. And it's like, um, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting character. Well, it's it's one of those things where it's a guy that fully recognizes the bleakness of his situation, mm-hmm. but is so keen on living in like the very exact moment that he's in mm-hmm. that he doesn't allow himself to think about, you know, what could possibly go wrong in like the next moment, as long as like that one moment, because that's what it's right. about. Like, you know, they're going to parties they're drinking yeah. he does drugs right still lives with his mom mm-hmm. um sheldon from big bang theory is has a brief cameo in this movie right. as like a, he's he, well he banged his mom like well right and he <laughs> plays a knight at medieval right. times calls him right. calls him a fast food knight right um yeah. it says balls on your head yeah um yeah, that's what made sheldon like uh, i can't remember the jim um parsons yeah. Like that, that 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 rolls well. Make Jim Parsons. It's good for being like yeah, like for, three and a half yeah, four minutes short. long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of emotional trickery in this movie, I think, because you really do want Largeman to be with um, Sam, the Natalie mm-hmm. Portman character, by yeah. the end of the movie, and it it it, it moves you like when they're mm-hmm. together and they're giving each other the speeches. But when you think about it, it's like 
I always call it like the Titanic effect. Like, you know, when you, you make me cry at the end of Titanic by killing this character that I'm not particularly all that invested in because it's just an action movie with like this romance, like paint on top of it. But then like you murder him and you make, or not murder him, you have him die and you make it really like this really effective scene with the music and the dialogue. So you're just like pulling these fake emotions out of me. And I kind of feel that way here. Like you don't, it's just like quirky, you know, and it's quirky in a way that, Napoleon Dynamite isn't because it's like the dialogue's like too perfect and too crisp and there's all these little moments where they say things and it's like the perfect thing for someone to say and I understand it's a movie mm-hmm. but what do you really learn about any of them like the most you know about anybody is the Zach Brave character and what you learn is that he's kind of an asshole like He's a dick when he's not medicated because he blows up at the Skarsgård character a couple of times who's really just trying to help him out. Yeah. And well, what it is is that he does. Yeah, I guess I have more sympathy, I think, than maybe you do for him. It's because I think he's the idea is that he's been so medicated from such a long time is that he does not have and he's been living in this like really fake society. Right. That he doesn't really, he's socially awkward and doesn't really know how to interact with people. Sure. So it's like when she's burying the gerbil or hamster or whatever it is, like... And he makes the joke He about, makes the joke about, like, the wheel. And, you know, he, does, he's, he doesn't know how to be sincere. You know, true. he throws a joke in there. And it's like, I think it's like those kind of things, the blow-ups, like... He doesn't, it's like, it's all coming out of him because he doesn't know how to act. And I understand that. And they excuse it. Like Natalie Portman and Peter Skarsgård, like both make jokes about it after Mm -hmm. he like blows up the one time when they're in the quarry. Sure. Um, I mean, look, I still enjoy this movie. Mm. I like the performances in this movie for the most part. I think, I think Natalie Portman and Peter Skarsgård are by far. The two best. I think Ian Holm is really weird in it. It's like yeah. as the it's father. A weird, like yeah, it's, it's a, a really, weird performance. But then he's probably medicating himself too. Like he's Maybe. probably on like antidepressants yeah. and whatever. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like Wes Anderson light, basically. Like with a lot of like stuff that he's trying to crib from things like Woody Allen. I think. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. I look. I Garden State is something for me. I've talked about this a couple times on the podcast, especially in like the introduction when we talk about movies, but it's like I stopped watching movies for a long time overall right. compared to what I used to watch. And it, it it's like I'm going to defend this movie a little bit uh, despite what I'm getting ready to say. Like I always blame this movie and I know that it's not fair to blame this movie because but this movie really started th- this movie showed production houses how to appeal to millennials right and all of the damn indie movies that i hate that come out the next 10 years after this movie comes out which is this kind of sad boy like you know i'm you know i'm sad i hurt like you know nobody understands me right um you know manic but is it manic pixie dream girl uh-huh. type stuff like all that stuff that I that I can't stand the quirkiness like you know the out of nowhere like you know zaniness of 
these independent and and I and for years I've been calling them white people movies. And because it's largely that's what it is. It's like, you know, it's you got two types of white people movies. You got the Garden State variety where it's disaffected 20 something or you have the John Irving type. Right. Which really like I squid guess squid in the whale squid in the whale is my prime example but really floor. sideways sideways sure. this year you know and it's like um and, but, and those are the two paths and it's like I've, I've bitched about those movies for so many years and it actually made me stop watching movies because it was just a glut of these things right. after this movie but it's really unfair for me like in some ways even though I and I knew it was unfair probably but it's like I think this movie still holds up really well right I enjoyed watching it this time like um you know, the things that come after it, like Elizabeth Town and like, you know, like all like Little Miss Sunshine and like all that stuff like right. that I just don't like. Um, Squid in the Whale, yeah. I um uh, I think he does a lot of really interesting things at times. It's it's not perfect, obviously. But it's like I love some of the visual stuff that he does in this movie. There's some really good visual stuff when they're screaming on top of the crane. That's at the, the quarry, is right? Really and good. I th- and that's and that's the climax of the movie when it comes down to it. It's right. like the idea that he, it's it's that's the most emotion that he can let out, and really that's that's the actual climax of the movie. That's the whole. Well, it's, that's what it's all leading towards. But um. But it's like even the beginning, like you know, like the some of the stuff, like I think like the the stuff on the plane's really good, um, like the way he films all that. Like I think like the the, the visual choke of the sw- the the shirt that like his aunt made for right, him that is pretty funny out of like the wallpaper leftover like leftover wallpaper whatever design, and he's like standing in front of the mirror like looking at himself in the bathroom where the wallpapers he's blending into it. But even that, it's like I think he does really interesting stuff visually to. Show show like how much of like he does he bleeds into the wall he's in the background he's not taking part of life and one of um one of one of the best scenes in the movie is when he's at the party at his rich friend's house yes and he's taking the ecstasy and like everyone is moving hyper fast around him and he's just sitting in one spot like sort of feeling things but like not really feeling right and it's like well it's a key it's like it's a it's a and i think that's really interesting too is like I think his acting at times might be the the worst performance, maybe except for Ian Holm, which I think is just weird, that character. But he does some things extraordinarily well, Brave does. And then, like, other things he doesn't. And But I actually think it's really interesting the way that he chooses to show him coming out of that stupor is that it's, like, slowly, like, that scene where it's, like, it's, he's been off of it for a day or two, it's, like the emotions coming through like his eyes and his lips his lips yeah he starts and to then smile. slowly though it's like his head starts to move in the scene with now the first scene with Natalie Portman the Sam character like his head starts to move and he becomes a bit more like animated at least like yeah. there it's almost like he's thawing out right. throughout the course of That's the movie which it. i think is a really interesting um brilliant way almost to like to play it like in a visual sense like so a mannerism sense let me ask you this because this is yeah. something that I, I I thought when I first saw the movie and like I really noticed it this time uh-huh. don't you think a lot of the effective like things you're talking about are more because of the music choices he makes sure like it's yeah. almost it's one of the that's the thing that gets criticized too, like nowadays. That people, because I'm not the only one that has this. I like I that, that thinks this is like that has criticized this, even though it's. 
I think it's unfair to criticize this movie just because it started it. But it's like tons of people criticize this movie now in hindsight because of that. And they criticize like there was like a an article I was reading where it's like some like some guy like you know and some hipster place up in New York like you know he uh, the the writer overheard this guy criticize somebody saying like oh I you, you probably like listen like the Garden State soundtrack or something right so it's like even hipsters now like criticize this movie and like the song choices but you're exactly right this is one of the best soundtracks right well soundtracks to matched- a Match to scene. Yes. Like, Agreed. So the scene on the couch, It's the song is called Waiting Line. And mm-hmm. I don't know anything about that band. I don't even know the name of the band. Yeah. But it's like... I used to know. The perfect, like, just the low, like... Almost melancholy, like, chorus. And it's really, like, downbeat. You know, and, like, synths and stuff. And... Listening to the shins, you know, mm-hmm. like when he's sitting there and like nodding his head to it, and she's got that big like. Mm-hmm. First of all, she's like kind of like apprehensive, like is he gonna yeah. like it? And they gets the big grin. And honestly, the best use of music in the whole movie is um, uh, only living boy in New York yeah, at the end, yeah. like when they're absolutely up on the crane, like yeah. that's like rising to the crescendo of the half of the time I'm gone and I don't know where. Uh-huh. Like as they're screaming, it's just like so perfectly. I, I honestly think, like, next to um, P.T. Anderson, who I think is... Him and Tarantino are probably the masters of music and movies, but I think P.T. Anderson is, like, by far my favorite mm. um, in terms of, like, melding a soundtrack to a scene. Mm-hmm. I think that this movie is just as, just as good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just because it's, like, that weird early 2000s, like, disposable alt-pop mm-hmm. that was popular. And you see, you have, like, The Shins, and you have... um. All these bands that, I, I mean, I can't even remember, like, half the bands that are on the soundtrack. But, like, every scene that has music in it just works really well. Sure. And it's really well done. I agree. I agree. It's, it's a great soundtrack. Um, and it really enhances the movie, you know. And you're right. Maybe it does. Maybe it makes the movie better than what it is. I mean, certainly that scene, I think, still really emotional at the end where he's, like, screaming into the abyss. But... It, that might it's probably only because of that song being played in the background and it you know it's it's really brilliant because he start the you know so it's a, it's a, a song that like rides its own waves into like a crescendo of the chorus it's a very like quiet almost like meandering tune that comes into like this you know the organ rises like the dun, dun and like it goes up into it and it's just like he uses that throughout like while he's playing that music of him climbing up on the crane and like with the rain behind them and then like them screaming and like the almost like what is it like reverse rack focus like into the quarry mm-hmm. like away from like all that stuff is just perfectly timed with the music and i don't know if you take that music out like maybe that's kind of a goofy scene yeah you know? it might like, it might be I, I i still think he does a couple things in that scene even like um it's going to be a weird comparison but like the the moment when william wallace and braveheart like cries out freedom and it cut and and Gibson cuts to the Irishman and um, I can't remember the, the redhead right. Scotsman, but mm. it, it cuts to them and they Hamish and it, Hamish and his, and their eyes close. Like they, they just like slowly close because it's like, they're cutting to them and showing them closing their eyes. Cause it's the recognition that he's going to be killed. Right. Um, and 
he, she, I, I think Brave does something kind of similar to that in the scene when he yells, it cuts the Portman. And Portman kind of like stops, and I think she acts it really well. Like stops and grabs Skarsgård's character, right, and makes him come back up. Like and and doesn't take her eyes off of Brave because there that character Sam knows like this is like a gigantic breakthrough. Right. Like instinctively knows that's right, and I think that actually more than anything is what adds the power beyond the song to that scene is the fact that she in like just somewhere deep inside of her knows this is a really important moment for this guy and goes to join him and I think like that really is like the thing that um that's probably powerful about that scene from yeah. a visual standpoint yeah so it's a mix of like bands that were like current on the cusp like indie popular bands mm-hmm. And older music from right. like, um, honestly, well, I don't know, probably from like his dad's, mm. like same age of his dad. So like Nick Drake and right. Simon and Garfunkel and Colin Hay. Mm. And then the stuff like The Shins and Coldplay and um, Iron and Wine, mm. like doing the cover of Such Great Heights. Right. Um, I forgot about that Let Go song that they play. Like, that's like perfectly... Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I, I really think the soundtrack makes it, like, a much better experience watching it than it might have been. It won a Grammy for the soundtrack, too, so. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. Did you do, Did you know that he's doing another one? A another sequel? Garden State movie? Yeah, sequel, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, last year, um, he uh, started a GoFundMe, and I can't remember, raised, like, $2 million in, like, fucking four hours or something. Uh, and, um... Yeah, it's apparently going to do a sequel to Garden State. Is it like him and Sam? I don't know. I know it's about him. I mean, about Andrew oh, Archman. Yeah. But I mean, I, I'm not sure what's going on there. I mean, which it could be really interesting. Um, I'd be interested to see like 15 years later where this character is sure. and like who he is. Sure. That actually might make me appreciate Garden State itself more. And look, like I... I hate it when we do a top five list and then I shit on a movie because then it's like, well, why did you put it on there? Because um, I really like this movie and I loved this movie when it came out. But I, I think that would be more interesting to see in his life. Like, so he went back for the girl in that moment, but then like what happened after? Sure. Almost like before sunset or. Yeah, yeah, right. It's like the, it's the idea of like, you know, what happens. Not that I've, I've, I've grown to not like this movie as much but it's like basically the graduate like what happens after that right you know and i think it's the same thing here is like you he said makes, you don't like the graduate i i said i no i didn't say i don't like the graduate i said i've grown to not like it as much like, isn't the graduate really like the proto garden state absolutely it's right? the that's the boomer garden state this is a millennial movie like millennials love this fucking movie I'm not sure if you know that, but it's yeah. like they absolutely love this movie. Well, remember, I had to watch this movie like probably four times in the theater. With like, Millennium, right, yeah. I mean... All my employees. Right. Um, You know, and I'm on like that border right there, like where I fall in X, but it's like I'm pretty close to that border of like X and and Millennial, but... um, But yeah, like this, this is definitely... And I, I think... Like I said, I think that's really what happened with this movie is that they learned how to market 
to millennials based off this movie and yeah. i think that's where you saw like what happened those 10 years i think the sequel is really interesting though um the idea of it i i, I will definitely watch it um I'm surprised that i had no idea yeah i'll go see it um but yeah I, so uh, i'll be interested to see what those characters are like in their 40s at that point okay uh, so number three on your list is it's a good pairing here eternal sunshine of the spotless mind uh directed by michelle gondry starring jim carrey kate winslet kirsten dunst mark ruffalo and tom wilkinson has a 93 percent from critics on rotten tomatoes and a 94 percent from audiences do you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and what you like about it so much um so jim carrey and kate winslet play these two people who meet each other on a train to Montauk and like immediately find a connection. Um, it turns out that they had originally dated and broken up. And during the breakup process, she had gone to this company called Lacuna Inc. that removes certain memories from people's heads so they can forget about bad things that happened. And he found out and was so upset that he had the same thing done. Um, so, um, large portion of the movie basically takes place in Jim Carrey's head as the process is happening. And he's working backwards through the relationship from like the most recent memory to the early memories. And he's hiding her in places where he thinks they won't look so he can maintain like memories of her. Um, till finally, like the last memory he has is their first memory, which is in Montauk right. and, she tells him, like, we got to go meet here, which is how they reconnect. A um, couple of, like, creepy subplots. Uh, so, Elijah Wood is one of the guys that works for the company, one of the memory erasers, that's using the memories that they're taking from him to basically, like, stalk and seduce the Kate Winslet character, um, which comes off as really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, yeah uncomfortable at the time probably more uncomfortable now just with kind of like it's the rape implications of it yeah um the other subplot and of, i know it's a trendy word nowadays like when i and i hate the overuse of it but um it is apt in this case he's gaslighting her is what he's doing right right like, exactly <laughs> um and then the other girl that's the girlfriend of she's ruffalo's girlfriend right in the movie the one that like had an affair with the guy that's the... I, it's, it's it's weird. It's, it's almost like a thing where it's like maybe they're going to get in a relationship, but like they're not actually in a relationship. He sleeps with her like during during yeah. the time that Carrie's, you know... Um, Being like... Process mind, is going on. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, but, but that the doctor wiped her mind because they had an affair right. and his wife had found out. And, sure. Um, so she steals all the files of everybody for Lacuna right. and that's how Carrie and Winslet like yeah. they get their files and they read them and they find out that they had this relationship. And so she's apprehensive about starting the relationship again because she's like, well, it's just, what if it just ends like it did? Um, but he's more hopeful and convinces her because I think he knows after seeing it in reverse that like all the good times were worth like any potential bad times that might happen. Um, so it's a really hopeful movie in that respect. And, one of the more interesting, like, modern science fiction movies, I think, just in the idea of, like, because it's really, like, it's not, like, the far future, like, fantastical science fiction. It's very, like, 
near future realistic science fiction that mm-hmm. we probably are on the cusp of being able to manipulate memory like that. Not like exactly like that, sure, but, but to some extent, you know, probably be able to like manipulate things and remove like bad experiences from people's memories to maybe help them cope with like PTSD or whatever. Yeah. Um, one of like the best Jim Carrey performances in the terms of like being relatable and human and moderately restrained, um, where he's not like a caricature, he's like an actual yeah. character. Um, there's none of that wacky shit where he like wags his tongue or, you know, he's actually acting in this yeah. movie. Kate Winslet like kind of skirts that line of the manic pixie dream girl thing, but has enough like rough humanity in her where she's not like this idealized. She's idealized only because he's idealizing her. She's not idealized to you as the viewer, which I think is the distinction there. I think when they first meet, there's a little bit of that. Like... Right, but only for because, the audience. But only because, right? Yeah. I, to me, the implication there is that the subconscious like attraction can never be gotten rid of. Mm-hmm. So that when they see each other, they immediately recognize. Oh, absolutely, that's what it is. Yeah, uh-huh. the connection in each mm-hmm. other. Yeah. Um, but as you see the course of their relationship and like how it kind of like devolves, um, she she has enough things that she does where you're just kind of oh absolutely no, no no i'm just saying early on i think that it's like it portrays her in that manic pixie dream girl type right. way and then completely kind of takes a left turn on yeah you. and i think that's almost like a purposeful i don't want to say like renunciation but just kind of like skewing of the thing the garden state is trying to do right well garden state's the optimistic you know have hope like the you can be saved through another person where i don't think that that's not what this movie is doing that's why i said they're a good pair i think is because it's actually taking a much more i think realistic look sure that you got to be able to understand that pain is going to occur and things bad things are going to happen and And that you have to work through them and accept those things because you still have the uh, there still is the possibility that maybe they when they get to that point in their relationship they're able to like fix it or move past it sure and that they're meant to be together in that respect so that it doesn't matter yeah um i i I like i don't know i i really like uh, michelle gondry a lot like i like Mm -hmm. his style um i like the way he films dreamlike sequences like especially the far past memories, like the stuff with um in the sink and under the table, and mm-hmm. like that stuff where he's, when he's a child, technically. Like, yeah, he's yeah. he's really good at like doing practical effects that make things seem dreamlike and fantastical, mm-hmm. which I think is a really good quality. Yeah, I agree. Um, his, some of his other movies have similar things, like a uh, Be Kind Rewind and um mm-hmm. Sleep. So whatever that one is about sleep, the science of sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them have similar like very like ethereal dreamlike qualities to him um i like everybody in it like i think that elijah wood is appropriately creepy um very dislikable character yeah uh carrie is like very likable there's a lot of really good like small romantic moments here like them out on the ice mm-hmm. making the snow angels and stuff like all that stuff mm-hmm. is really good and really heartwarming and you, you genuinely are rooting for them as a couple to stay together and succeed. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's, um, I don't know if there's much else to say about it. I mean, again, like I think that Gondry is a pretty talented director. 
Um, it was definitely at this point like one of the like it directors in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and I think it's still like eminently rewatchable. Like I think it holds up really well. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting dilemma for me. Like that. I don't know if it's as rewatchable as say Garden State or Napoleon Dynamite. I think it's the stronger film out of the yeah. out, of, out of all those. Um, but I don't know if it's like something I would want to watch all the time. I mean, I've seen it four or five times. Oh, really? Yeah, I saw it. I think I only this saw the, it once in the theater, but gotcha. I definitely have watched it with like on dates with people a couple times. Gotcha. And Frankie and I have watched it together. This is the second time I've seen it, so. That's interesting. I, I I really liked it when it came out uh, a lot. Some of the stuff that Gondry does in hindsight now, it's kind of like the Garden State thing. It's like now it's a little kind of like uh, done. Right. It's, 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 it's been done a lot, but uh, but I, I can't hold that against the movie. But it's So it wasn't quite as interesting visually to me the first time I saw it. But 15 years later, the emotional impact of that movie was much greater to me. Right. At 39 than it was 24. Um, well, you have the, you know, the the perspective of time. Right. And of living through, like, a life to think about. Sure. Like, right. I think it's really, and again, like, I'm not the hugest science fiction fan, but I think it's, like, one of the more clever science fiction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like questions in a movie is like is it worth having your mind altered to forget something that maybe you could grow from like how yeah how can you become a better person if you never can like learn from your mistakes and learn from things that caused you pain sure and i think that's you know what carrie ultimately realizes i mean absolutely i'm not ashamed to admit like i teared up at the end of this movie right um, it's good it's, it's really when when he's losing her in the house, yeah, and trying to like shut the doors on her and like mm-hmm. the whole like number one, I love that visually like the yeah. the sand and the water like coming uh-huh, in and like uh-huh. the thing like disintegrating sure. around them. When you don't know a hundred percent that they're going to succeed at it, like mm-hmm. it's 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 pretty pretty heart wrenching. Yeah, and like, the, honestly though, that's not what I'm talking about. I understand exactly what you mean. Oh, you mean like at the very very the end? very it's the very very end. It's like them in the hallway when she's gonna leave and he runs after. Her. And they had the conversation of paraphrasing of, you know, like, why don't we give it another try? And she's like, well, no, because they've heard each other's thoughts. This is what you're going to think about me. I'm I'm this and you're going to think that. And like and the response is just like a, it's like this kind of like slight grin of like remembering like the good times a little bit still like and it's like, OK. And like this is the simplicity of like let's okay i accept all that you know and maybe that'll happen but the implication is like you said maybe it won't and it's like that level of maturity at that point of being able to realize like you know and still having hope you know that it could be different but willing to go through the good even if the bad's there agreed um i I, it's i thought it was for such a simple thing okay it's it's yeah it got to me a little bit um but uh, yeah, I I think emotionally this was a much more powerful film for me now, and I get it makes complete sense of why. But um, yeah, I think I thought it still held up really, really well. Yeah, I really enjoyed it again, and I don't. Know, it just it's weird because like I feel like now I feel like then 
we were finding these gems in these quirky rom-com dramedy like indie movies Mm -hmm. and now i feel like when i find stuff like this it's in like some weird like horror movie Mm. and like i i mean obviously Mm. i love horror yeah it's like that's where i feel like the inventiveness has moved to is like the horror genre when you really see people who are like embracing i don't know like different narrative structures and like do you think it has to do with budget that like uh how could i mean like obviously necessity movie, is the mother of invention type right thing? but like garden state had to be a cheap movie to shoot like how much could that movie cost once yeah, you get past paying the actors right yeah, yeah like everything was filmed on like actual locations right. you didn't have to construct anything mm-hmm. maybe you constructed that the hallway for method man when he's like right peeping yeah. at people i mean eternal sunshine yeah a lot of those horror movies probably don't require much of a budget but some of them like like hereditary and annihilation like i'm sure they were decently budgeted movies and then, yeah. i mean they're still good but like that's where the interesting things are happening in my opinion is yeah. like these artists like going to that genre and like having different takes on witches and ghosts and psychic powers and monsters and it's just that's how i felt when we were watching these movies like these two lost in translation um you know just these small movies broken flowers you know, where right. it's just a small movie about really private human concerns and just told in a, an interesting way. So there's something, it's a, it's a pretty solid paragraph here, but I, I, I do think it's more interesting than most things that I run across huh. um, in terms of criticism. It's um, Stephanie Zacharick from Salon. Uh, she says that, Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind represents a failure of nerve. As if Gondry and Kaufman weren't sure that the story of Joel and Clementine would hold us, the doomed couples unfolding in reverse romance is intercut with a subplot filled with zany touches like Marco Ruffalo as a sexy, awkward techno geek in nutty professor glasses and Kirsten Dunst as a dippy, adorable office assistant um, who educates herself by memorizing quotations from Bartlett's. The Ballad of Joel and Clementine is a piercing reverie, gorgeously sun-dappled and at times so wrenching that it's almost painful to watch. But whenever Ruffalo and Dunst, or any of the other movies' numerous sidekicks, uh, like the far uh, from mad scientist Tom Wilkinson or Elijah Wood as Ruffalo is well-meaning but Dimwood assistant, it's a weird take, uh, appear, the movie jerks us out of our dream state. He just, she just <clears throat> called... Yeah, it's it's yeah yeah. The wood character, well-meaning but dim-witted, he's a monster. Yeah, I know. Like um, he's, if you only are looking at it in the sense of his being his assistant, that is true. If you just ignore, the, I guess ignore like the actual like plot sure, right. point that he's involved in, which so. Is, she says, you might argue that this is a dramatic device, a way of breaking what would otherwise be an incredibly intense story into easily digestible bits. But I think it's symptomatic of a much larger, thornier problem in movie making today. One that undercuts the reasons movies have come to mean so much to us, emotionally and culturally, in the first place. The 90s were all about ironic detachment. It was uncool to care too much about anything, or at least admit as much. Now that we've treads somewhat tentatively into the 21st century, most of us claim to have gotten over the irony thing. 
And yet, many of the movies of the past five years that have been hailed as inventive and interesting by young audiences are also movies that work hard to wow us with their jigsaw intricacies. It's as if young filmmakers fear that their audiences will become bored with a movie if they don't have a clever mind-boggler to wrestle with along the way, the equivalent of a magic bingo card on a long car trip. In grappling with these perplexing riddles, we're supposedly exercising our intellect, but isn't it also possible that we're using them as a handy diversion, a way of distancing ourselves from emotions that might be too strong for us to deal with easily? These plots are supposed to stimulate us, but are they really just distracting us from the work at hand, the work of actually feeling? Nah, I don't agree with that. Number one, I think that I think this movie is like very affecting from an emotional standpoint. Mm-hmm. So Gondry is not filming in his native language, which I think always can lead to some like to various degrees, like a sense of detachment when you're watching a movie that's filmed by somebody that's Mm -hmm. filming dialogue. That's not what they natively speak. I think, I mean, is it complex? Like, sure. It's got some complex ideas, but it's at its core, a romance, you know, it's Mm -hmm. about the romance and it does a good job of investing you in the characters. And I don't think it ever tries to trick your eye away from like what you're seeing. Like, I don't find it to be, Again, like, that's my complaint about Titanic, is that that's, like, shoehorned in to make you feel emotionally when you haven't done the work. You haven't worked me to the point where that investment is, like, actually earned. It's, like, just it's trickery. Mm-hmm. But Eternal Sunshine isn't like that. Like, Eternal Sunshine is about people that you grow to care about and watching their relationship dissolve in reverse and then giving you that hope. Like, it's... Whatever. And this is the school of people that come from, these are filmmakers that were in college or making their first films or deciding they wanted to become filmmakers watching shit like Pulp Fiction. Right. You know, so their school of thought is coming from this fractured narrative universe. And everybody wanted to be that. Like everybody in the 90s wanted to be Tarantino. Like, if you cared about film, like, that's what you thought was, like, cool. So, of course, they're going to make things, like, more sure narratively complex. It's not, like, fucking And the thing is, is, like, they're all these filmmakers, like, that she's talking about, they're all Xers. And I will contend to my dying day that Xers will never really get over the irony thing. Right. I don't know. I wasn't over the irony thing. I, st- I still don't know if I am. Like, I mean, completely. Shit, I like Van Helsing, ironically, apparently, and I don't even know it. <laughs> Right, that's just too much faith in the actual filmmakers there. I think <clears throat> it's actually optimism on your part. <clears throat> okay, so anything final about this movie? Any? No, um, I still think um, a really enjoyable film, really well made film. I think it's got great performances. I still think it's visually stunning. Um, I think again, I think Gondry is brilliant at filming. Just the, I don't know, dream state of, like, human existence, basically. Mm. Um, And I think, like, it's a movie that'll stand the test of time, like, Mm. for... Where some of these, some movies from this era, like, I don't think you'll remember in, like, 30 years. I think you'll still have thoughts about Eternal Sunshine. Like, I still think about it sometimes, like, scenes and the way things Mm. look. Yeah. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to number two. Okay. 
So number two on your list is The Life Aquatic, directed by Wes Anderson, starring Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Angelica Houston, and Willem Dafoe. has a 56% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 82% from audiences. Uh, we have discussed this movie in part during the Best of Wes Anderson Third Man series, um, but did you want to go ahead and just give us a short synopsis of the movie and go into your highlights? Yeah, so it follows um, Bill Murray plays Steve Zizou, who's a Jacques Cousteau um, parody, basically. Um, falling on kind of financial hard times because he's sort of removed from his like earlier celebrity as this invest like you know investigator of the oceans or whatever. Um, also implied, like not even implied, also throughout the movie, it's shown that like he fakes a lot of the stuff. Um, that he's doing uh, becomes reunited with a um, Owen Wilson character who may or may not be his son um, claims that he's his son and sort of takes him on initially as a way to try and like boost, I guess, interest in his next project. Um, and also takes on a reporter um, who he has like romantic attraction to. She's pregnant um, but kind of falls in love with the Owen Wilson character. Um, there's some pirate kidnappings. Uh, basically, Owen Wilson like sort of dies, or maybe doesn't die in the movie that they make out of it, The Life Aquatic, about like finding like this shark that ate his friend. Um, it becomes like his next like big hit, and um. I mean, like, you know, we, we talked about it at length before and I think it was, it was difficult. Like I kind of like fought with myself about whether or not to include this in the next movie on the list because we have discussed them. Um, but just in thinking about like legitimately the best of both from my personal perspective and like what I feel is like objectively one of the best movies of the year, um, I think it's important to, like, talk about it. I'm really surprised. You 56%? Yes. That's really crazy. Like, I don't... I'm, I'm actually really interested to hear, like, some of the criticism of it. Because to me, it's... um. I mean, I, I picked it as my favorite Wes Anderson movie during that podcast. And I still think that when you look at, like, the way he directs and his kind of quirky... I don't know, almost like fairy tale esque way that he directs movies. I think it's probably the most perfect example of like his directing style. <coughs> I think it's got a really interesting like narrative structure in the sense that you always kind of have to decide am I watching something that's really happening or am I watching something that he's producing as part of his like TV show, his movie or whatever it is, his series. Um, I like the performances in it a lot. Like, I think Murray's really good as, like, this... I mean, basically just playing, like, the character that he plays in, like, a dozen movies, which is the older, like, disaffected asshole character that still has, like, some element of humanity in him and, you know, has to find it through, like, making the mistakes that he makes as an asshole. Um, Angelica Houston's really good in it. Um, what's his name, uh... Jeff Goldblum is really good. Yeah, in it. Goldblum, really funny yeah. performance from Goldblum. 
Um, Owen Wilson, who I'm not like a huge fan of, I think gives a really good performance. Um, Kate Blanchett, right? That's the, mm-hmm. she plays the love interest. She's really good in it. I think it's like really well filmed. I love the, the just goofy, like claymation style fakeness of like the sea creatures and just the way that it, the set's designed and. It's got a great soundtrack of like Bowie songs being sung in French by their um, one of the shipmates, and it's just I don't know. It's it's a it's an endearing movie. It's a funny movie. I think it's really well paced. Um, I don't know. I just I I really like it a lot. Yeah, and we saw this we saw this together in the theater. I think uh, Christmas Eve. Right, Zeke was with us. Right? No, it was my friend Megan. Oh, okay. Did we see it twice? Pretty sure Zeke was in, uh, one to one. I think we saw it twice. I don't think Zeke was living here then, was he? Yeah, he was. In two thousand and four. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. Really? I, yeah, I only remember because Zeke was really tired and fell asleep for like ten minutes during the movie. Hmm. Um, I I'm, I have no recollection. We were sitting. Of we were Zeke. sitting kind of in the, like the back row, um, or like next to the back row or something like that, like in the theater. I, I remember it pretty clearly. My my real my <laughs> best memory of of this was so regal like never closes but on christmas eve you close early and on christmas day you open late mm-hmm. so people can have time to spend with their families right um because they're christmas day especially later in the day is one of the busier like days of the year True. um but we had closed early um i had gotten yelled at by a family that told me that i was ruining their tradition of coming to see the last show of the night even though I'd worked at the theater for like almost 10 years at that point, right. I told them like, we have never been open past like eight o'clock right. on a Christmas Eve. Um, but I remember, you know, like being really blown away by it. Um, right. we actually developed the theory that I don't know if I've ever read anybody say that, um, I, I never found it anywhere else. What's, what's the Owen Wilson character's name? It's not Steve. It's, um, Ned, Ned, right that Ned didn't actually die, that they wrote him out of it so he could, like, be a father to um, Kate Blanchett's, like, child. And that at the end, when they're getting onto the boat, like, after the award ceremony thing has happened, that you can, like, clearly see Ned standing up on the crow's nest, like, looking out and smoking his pipe. And that it's obvious that Ned is still alive and that all of it was just a, a ruse to, like, make this really powerful... Yeah, movie. and we and we have tons of evidence that we discussed in the in the best of Wes Anderson that l- lends itself to that reading. I think very clearly the fact that there's the gun that Ziso shoots at one point, like to fight off the pirates, and it fires. I can't remember. I counted them the last time. I can't remember what it is now, but it's, it's something like dozens of. It's of, like eighteen, nineteen shots or right. something like that. It's, it's it's not realistic and whatsoever. I mean, there's. There's all these like little things where it's like, um, well, Jeff Goldblum gets shot in that scene, right, and is in no way like yeah. hindered or harmed by the fact that he got shot in the chest. Absolutely, and yeah, he's still running through like the the island and all that kind of right. stuff. There's the one intern who ends up getting a machete through the shoulder, no medical attention really, other than they just bandage it up, right, um, and like there's the fish itself which is cgi 
Huh? The boat that's a half cutout that's obviously a set. Right. There's that. Like, you know, there's character stuff in it, like the Goldblum thing, the minor stuff, where Goldblum is, like, you know, a former lover of the Angelica Houston character. Um, and, like, it's always been this kind of triangle between... But I think that's even fake, because I think that Goldblum's always been gay. It was just made that way to build... Yeah, no, I know, right. And then at the end, it's like, they to, to resolve that plot line... Like, they give Goldblum a line where it's like, oh, it's okay, it's no big deal, because I'm part gay. And it's like, it's just like, they need to, like, finish that storyline real right. quick, and they just wrote this line. Um, I mean, the whole point of the film is that, like, you know, he's won these awards for these fake movies... And, like, he's still looking, what is it? No, he's never won, sorry, he's never won the award with all these fake movies. And then I think the idea is that Ned is, really does this come to find his father, but they work him into the movie. Right. And he becomes part of, like, the whole ruse for this movie. But because there actually is that real connection between the two characters that they're trying to figure each other out and like develop a relationship that that comes across in the movie and he does win the award like at the end of the movie and the idea is like you know that's what he's always wanted his whole life and then like at the end he leaves the award sitting there and just walks away you know with the kid on his shoulders because the idea is he has a son now he doesn't need the award. Right. And then he goes back to the boat. And like you said, he's up in the crow's nest. And now Wes Anderson, I know, has made some kind of claim. It was on the DVD commentary years ago that it's like supposed to represent some sort of spirit like that Ned's always with him or something like that. And I mean, Anderson's not somebody to talk about like the readings of his movies. Sure. So, may, may, look, may, maybe that's true, but it's like, I think it's bullshit. I, I, I don't think that is right agreed and i think what we determined last time was that if that's what really happened if ned actually died and this is all supposed to be real in some way then it's a really bad it's a terrible movie. movie it's a bad movie right. um so so with the caveat that like our specific reading of this is why we like it so much is right? why we like it so much um but i i just think there's so many visual cues when you're seeing something that's not real and when you're seeing something that's real agreed and it's the way that he films things it's the stock that he uses mm-hmm. to film things yeah it's the way that dialogue is written and delivered when it's real and when it's yeah. not um and i think if you look at it that way it ends up becoming brilliant performances right by especially by murray when between like when he's cuz i do think there's some stuff that's like it, they actually, that's the th- the brilliant thing is that they actually are, they don't know each other and they're trying to actually build a relationship, but they're also delivering dialogue almost. And I think like the, the stuff like up in like the top of the ship at night when Ned comes up to see him and what is it? It's like, do you want to go on an adventure with me? It's such bad acting. Right. And it's because Zisu, the character is not a very good actor. And I, right, he's got the crazy eyes or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And it's like, that's part of the filming. Now there's stuff in that movie that's not part of the filming. Like a lot of the stuff with the Kate Blanchett character and those kind of things is not part of that movie. Right. And that's why the, the dialogue actually is like delivered. You know, you can see it in Zisu, like the way Bill Murray plays the character during scenes with her, where he is this kind of little lecherous, like, you know, 
bitter old man at this point. Right. But he doesn't come off like that in other times when he's around his crew and those kind of things. It's obvious they're just and filming. And he just a... becomes an action hero. Like, he fights off right. the pirates. They sure. track him to their island. Right. He leads this charge to, you know, against these heavily armed. Yeah. It's, like, all of it is just completely ridiculous, but it's ridiculous on purpose. Right. And the stuff that's not is really heartfelt and well-delivered. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, I don't know. I mean... What's what's some critical complaints about it? Like I'm really surprised by that. Honestly, like I, 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 I mean, I scoured through. Like a lot of it is that they think um, that the uh, plot and the performances are so horrific. Like that that that, that words come up a couple different times in different reviews, particularly um, Michael Wilmington, the Chicago's Tribune. But I saw that word come up a couple times, and it's like they they just think that it's poorly acted. Uh, a lot of people seem to think it's like one of Bill Murray's worst performances, which would be true if if you read the movie as it's portrayed without delving into like what's really going on in it, which I'm still convinced that we're right on. Right. Um, Ebert gave it two and a half. Like, that's the thing with a lot of these negative reviews. A lot of them are like two star reviews, um, which I don't know, like depending on how how you write about it. It's um, two star reviews. A lot of times they're much are usually a little bit more positive than they are negative. But he gives a two and a half stars, and he says events on the boat are modulated at a volume somewhere between a sigh and a ghostly exhalation. Zisu is very tired. I suggest for his epitaph, um, life is for him was but a dreary play. He came, he saw, he disliked, and passed away. Ned makes an effort to get to know his father, a task made difficult because Steve may not be his father and is uh, is not knowable. Jane, Ned, and Steve form a romantic triangle, or perhaps it is just a triangle. A folk perf- singer performs the works of Bowie in Portuguese, and the ship is boarded by Filipino pirates. So you see, it's that kind of movie. <laughs> um, A lot of it is like... People starting at this point, it seems to me, um, from reading criticism of Anderson during that last episode, it seems people are starting to get tired of the Wes Anderson gimmick by this movie. That it's like they've seen Rushmore, they've seen Royal Tenenbaums, and now there's this third movie that has many of those same elements, and they're starting to get bored with it. Some people actually would have preferred to have Gene Hackman in the role of, like, Bill Murray, that they think Hackman would have done it better. Um, but really, really interesting it's poor acting is common, that it's a ridiculous plot, and then you have, you know, Ebert kind of, like, as the spokesperson of people that are just getting tired of Wes Anderson being Wes Anderson. And I think that's like this kind of like it's this perfect storm almost of not understanding the movie, of getting tired of his shtick, and um, another thing, but I can't remember what it is. So, but it's one of his uh, lowest movies like, yeah. in terms of critical response. I just I don't know. I think it's just that people don't get it really. Like I don't yeah. want to sound pretentious or egotistical, yeah. but I think that. I I think if you suspend your disbelief and view the entire movie as quote unquote real, right, it's a mess. Right. Like it doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. And you have to, like it's, 
And here's a guy that was like a critical darling. So it's not like he had a limit to his budget. Purposefully making the special effects. It's just like in Rushmore when sure. they're doing the plays. Right. Like you can tell it's fake. Mm-hmm. And it's it's on purpose because it's a yeah. play. And it's the same thing. You know, oh, it's here's like, the thing. During Ned's death scene in the water, how the fuck's there a camera in the water? Right. It's because it's staged. Right. Yeah. Oh, I think we're going down. Right. Like it's right. It's as, so... as as soon as the letter, and there's that whole thing with the letter, where it's like he he admits that like you know to Ned right before the death that it's like he knew he existed and that he's sorry kind of and like all these yeah, it's it's obvious you know like and it's staged. um what's his name the uh, Willem Dafoe right yeah, yeah. character like I made you the patch right right. Yeah, I love you. Like, all, like all that stuff. It's also like from a narrative structure. Like, of course, like it's building you up to care. Like, right. to finally see like the acceptance, and sure. then like you take. And another thing, I I just thought of this after fifteen years, but you remember, there's like a there's things where it's like Ned needs to get back because right. they're telling him he needs to come back for the Air Force too. So it's kind of possible also that they faked his death. So he can go join them. Right. And not have to go... Exactly. Because Zizu owns an island. It's not like you can... Like, you'll ever find him. And he's... As long as you don't ever film him, like, no one will ever know. Right. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think... I love this movie. Like, again, we've watched it, both of us now, in the past six months, I guess, it's been since we've done that. And... Like, definitely, like, still holds up. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I, I, you're, you're right. Like, it is part of that ennui of, like, his weird quirkiness, I think, at the time. And mm-hmm. I felt that way towards, you know, I mean, I feel that way about um, Darjeeling Limited, sure. you know. Like, it's it, it's a little much, and, like, you get kind yeah. of tired of it. But there's really nobody else making movies like him. And he's made some really good movies. So. Sure, yeah. Oh, you just kind of like have to put up with it. And I'll, I'll be honest, I don't know if it's Wes Anderson so much in Darjeeling Limited is, um, by that time, even though he's not in either of the second two movies, um, I think it's Jason Schwartzman fatigue. Yeah, it's, that's probably true too. Like, it's just that character and that shtick because it's pretty much always the same character to some degree. Right. It's funny because my, my favorite Jason Schwartzman performance is, um, uh, Scott Pilgrim. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, the right. smarmy, yeah. like supervillain, mm-hmm. mega hipster asshole right. is like the perfect use of Schwartzman as an actor because that's what, right? Because he was like in that band or whatever where he played the drums, mm-hmm. the California Here We Come band yeah, or whatever, right? Um, I don't know. Yeah, so. I think that I I think that if you've if you've watched Life Aquatic and you've had a bad impression of it, or you maybe just had like a middling impression, think of it from that fact that it's not real and you're like basically watching like the faking of this thing that they're creating and see if you enjoy it more. Cause yeah. I think it makes it a much, much, much more enjoyable movie from yeah. that perspective. Right. Okay, so number one on your list is Kill Bill Volume 2, directed by Quentin Tarantino, starring Uma Thurman, David Carradine, Michael Madsen, Daryl Hannah. Has an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 89% from audiences. 
Um, I thought we were done with Tarantino after last week for a while, and then one week later, and here we go again. I I do find it interesting, though, that... Because we've also talked about this movie last week during the retrospective some, but not as much. And then we also talked about during the remakes, best best sequels of the 2000s. Right. And... Um, but I do find it interesting that, yeah, both of these are things we have talked about in, in, in slightly different contexts, I think, before. But at the same time, it's interesting that it's like this year like has two of those movies that we've already discussed, mm-hmm. which I think goes to show how pivotal that year is in some ways. Yeah, I think it's an important year. Um, Before we get into talking about this, do you remember... Do you remember the night that we went to go see this, like when it first came out, like when we stayed after and watched it? I do. Do you remember my situation that night? I had not until you brought it up. We were talking about this maybe at the bar the other day or something. Mm-hmm. How you were like that's really sick. I, yeah, that's kind of not good that I don't remember that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was like deathly sick. Like, like I got like sick like four days before this. You had bronchitis or something. Yeah. Yeah. And like. And, like, I was like, oh, no, I'm good enough to go. I was, like, the whole time, like, I was absolutely miserable sitting there watching this. To the point where it's just, like, I wasn't even reacting to anything on the screen. But I think it's, this movie was so powerful, like, despite, like, through my haze, that I remember, I I remember everything from it. It's like I was taking it in and processing it. I just, like coughing and you know snot coming out of my nose you were sitting far away from us too right because i didn't want to get anybody sick i mean we used to spread out anyway we did but yeah i told you were like like, down right from us yeah i do remember that and um but yeah and like it was so powerful that i actually like all those scenes were solidified in my head after like one viewing and i've seen this movie Probably not that many times, actually, like as a, in a sitting, like, you know, maybe two more times after that, like as a mm-hmm. whole. I've seen pieces of it a lot, but like as a whole, sitting down and watching the whole thing through um, uh, twice. And but it's like the second time I watched it when it came out on DVD, like because I don't think we saw it twice. I didn't see I it did. twice in the theater. I don't think I watched it multiple times. And um but yeah, like I knew everything in it. Like even though I was sick and in that haze, like I remembered everything because I think like it's still like that powerful. But um, so I don't know what how much you want to do with a synopsis here. I mean, I don't know that we need to. Yeah, I mean, so, so I've seen this movie probably eight times, maybe. Yeah. Like I've right. seen this movie a lot, yeah. and I always will watch Kill Bill back to back. Like I don't watch one without watching the other. Oh. Um, like when I watch these movies, I cut off like a five to six hour portion of a day and I'll just like watch them. Right. Um, I, number one, I think this is Tarantino's best film. Um, even though I love once upon a time in Hollywood, um, and that's probably moved up to my number two spot. Um, Kill Bill volume one and two are to me, like the pinnacle of his, fever dream like hyper stylized dialogue and action mixed with like his most believable superhero characters like the way that he makes characters like larger than life 
you know, in the interactions between Bill and the bride and, um, uh, Bud and Bill and Bud and the bride. And there's just the stuff with, you know, um, Daryl Hannah's character, Mm -hmm. like interact, like all the, all the interpersonal, even like the thing where she realizes she's pregnant and the, um, the Asian assassin is there with the shotgun, like trying to kill her. Like these small little moments of just like where it's still like that quick, like whip smart dialogue, mm-hmm. but still very human. Yeah. And you just feel like Bill is a despicable villain, but he's also a heart sick, wounded old man who's just in love with this woman mm-hmm. and in love with being a father, but still willing to like maybe murder her and his daughter just to prove his point. Like it's, it's such a great nuanced villain role that like, well, the thing is too, when he like, when he kills her, he thinks it's not his, it's not until like he's pulling, getting, pulling the trigger where she's like, Bill, it's it's your your baby. Right. You know, and he puts a bullet in her. I don't get me wrong. Awful. Disgusting. Like I'm not saying anything other than that, but in this sick, twisted old man's head, like who's in love with her and thinks that he's, she's abandoned him and one golf and gotten pregnant by somebody else. He's a murderer. Right. You know, that's what a murderer would do is like react in that way. But, um, but he doesn't know that it's his, his kid. And when he finds, when he figures out when, when she's saying that, I think it's like, and she lives, he raises the child. Yeah. And, and won't let them finish her off. Like they, right. he right. forces them to keep her in a coma. Sure. Um, to the point where right. Daryl Hannah goes to kill her in the first movie. Yeah. Um, and he won't let her. Right. Because he still has that. Cause he does look like, he does look at them as like his children basically. Yeah. Except for Bud who's his brother. But yeah. you know, he's got that paternal instinct, but it's mixed with like, like a cold blooded, like, assassin's mindset and Uh it's very it's in my opinion it might be like his most inspired casting to get to have Carradine in this role and you told me that was suggested to him by somebody well yeah right he was he originally wrote the role in the first script with Warren Beatty in mind and it's going to be like more of like a Bond type head of like the assassins and Warren Beatty ended up turning it down because he won because he, he didn't want to go to China, and he suggested Carradine for it. And when he suggested Carradine, Tarantino rewrote the entire like backstory and like character to fit Carradine. And I mean, I think it's the right choice. Right, the Carradine, end, obviously, like, brilliant, amazing in yeah. the in the role. Yeah. Just like even small things, like there's. In the first movie, before you're introduced to David Carradine, when Bill is like the faceless villain, Mm -hmm. when he's talking to um, Daryl Hannah, the way he's like flicking the sword inside its scabbard, Mm -hmm. like like moving his hand up and then like flicking the um, the guard and then pushing it back down to like punctuate his point, it's Mm -hmm. it's so well done. Sure, and him like telling the story with the flute is like amazing, Mm -hmm. and his you know, use of like the flute's a musical instrument, but it's also like almost like a baton. And then it's also like a sword. Right. Yeah. Which you brought up to me, which I had forgotten 
because when I was drunk one night, I was sitting there talking about him, like, with that big-ass damn knife that he uses in the scene where he's making the sandwich for L and, uh, not L, um, for Beatrix and, and their child. Um, he has that knife is way too big, like, you know. Um, right, and, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a carving knife. Right, and he's like, and but he uses it to, one, in a friendly way, punctuate the story, but it's still a threatening way because the knife's overly large and he uses it to point. Not only Beatrix, but the child at times, right. which is really, like, uneasy. But, yeah, and he does, you pointed out that he does the same thing, kind of, like, with the flute. Right. Like, well, because Bill is the consummate assassin. Like, sure. everything in his hand is a yeah. deadly weapon. Right. Um, I, yeah, I, like... Because he's so charming. That's the thing. Is like, when you meet him, he's so damn charming. Right. And, like, like especially, like, Tarantino gives him the two, like, kind of brilliant, like, soliloquies almost. Like, the, the, the story about the fish that he's telling when he's making sandwiches about like her, the daughter gone in and taking the fish yeah, out of the BB bowl. Like and, crushing the right. And like, you know, it's like, what is it? Is there any better image of life and death than a fish, a fish flopping than a fish not flopping? Like, you know, even a child can understand. Like he has that brilliant, like little like story for like three or four minutes. Then the story of Pi May. Well, he has that, right? Yes. And then he also has the Superman thing at the end, the Superman thing. Is when the Superman like, thing is after they send BB to bed, right? Yes, and then he po- and then he like hit he shoots her with the dart. The the the, un- the undisputed truth <laughs> is what he calls it. Um, Tarantino's soul references, but so yeah, it's the undisputed truth. Like he gives her, and like they're waiting for that to kick in. And he's like, you know, until it kicks in let me tell you and like he has that whole thing about like you know Beatrice being like you know uh uh Superman and it's like you know whatever her name she was changing it to when she was trying to run away that was her being Clark Kent you know um a commentary on humanity that Clark Kent is like you know because he's weak and passive and cowardly and yeah brilliant fucking speech it is it is really well written and it's I, I honestly think the Pai Mei is my favorite yeah. bill. I also like, I love the, and that'll be the story of you mm-hmm. thing at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is one of the things that actually bothers me in Django is that right. he like cribs yeah. his own line mm-hmm. and it's delivered so much worse yeah. by Samuel L. Jackson in that scene. Right. Right. Because it's not just, and that will be the story of you. And then it's over. It's like, and that'll be the story of you. Django, right? Yeah. I, uh, yeah, yeah. I wish I liked. I don't know. So, the other thing that I think is fascinating about this this one is because the the first one, and I mean, some of the criticism of this movie is that um, one one big thing is that it's um after the first one is so action packed that this one just slows down to a grinding halt. People say, and. That's silly. It's like missing the whole point. At, I, I think to some degree. Not only that, but there's there's it's it's the action is more sporadic. I think. Well, like, you know, it, it builds to the action. Much it's more. all individual, like boss battles, basically mm-hmm. against the rest of the um. What are they? The five deadly venoms or something like that is what they're mm-hmm. called. Yeah. Like, um. Because it's. Like, Bud just takes her out. Right. 
And then Bud gets poisoned by Ellie. And then there's the great fight scene between her and Ellie mm-hmm. in the trailer. Sure. Which, like, the choreography on that is amazing. Oh, yeah, like, absolutely. Especially with, like, yeah. hitting the ceilings and hitting the walls and, mm-hmm. like, knocking her through the yeah. the bathroom. And then the the brief scene with her, the assassin, like, blowing the hole in the door. Mm-hmm. And then the Bill fight at the end, I mean, it's the two like most deadly assassins out of these deadly assassins mm-hmm. like fighting each other. And it is brief and brutal because right. it has to be like, yeah. she does this technique that he's not expecting that Pai may never taught anyone else. Right. And does it to perfection end his life. I mean, it's, yeah. I don't know. Like, I, yeah. I, and it's like, the thing is, is like, this is this is a much I, this is why I think it's better than the first one is because it's as great as the first one is it really is just an action story right. where this actually adds the nuance in that I think you need for the story to be complete and and to to have any kind of emotional weight to it and the fact that it's like bookended by like kind of Bud and Bill where Bud's gotten out of the life. And ostensibly, it seems like Bill, like, he might have still have his hands in it and stuff, but he's kind of out of life, too, because he's raising his daughter. Um, he's certainly not as in it as much. Right, I think he's just sending, sure. still sending them to do Absolutely, right, yeah, but he's kind of, like, himself has been removed from a lot right. of that. And here's Bud, who you have these conflicting emotions with, and that's really, it's adding the nuance to the whole thing. Because Bud's, like, you know, whole thing is, like, you know, that woman deserves a revenge right. after what we've done to her. But it doesn't stop. Just because she deserves her revenge doesn't mean he's going to lay down. Right. She needs to earn it. Right. And it's like I, that, like that, the nuance of that character, you know. And and here's a guy who's legitimately repentant, I think, for some of the things he did. Because you don't do what he did and then go clean up shit f- from a strip club, like right. in the bathrooms. And just take it from the boss who's, like, on top of him yelling at him unless you're trying to change who you are in your life. Sure, that's his penance is right. doing that. Yeah. And it's it's a great role by Michael yeah. Matt. And there's... It's Matson's. I think it's even even though as Blonde's the best thing maybe in Reservoir Dogs and years later, I think that's Matson's best role in a Tarantino. Oh, yeah. It's better than definitely. Blonde. Yeah. Blonde is yeah. a very one-note... Yeah. Role, but still just, done to perfection almost to like blonde i think look i'm not going to be able to talk good about reservoir dogs for a while probably so <laughs> that's fine if that's you know i don't know yeah i like this one of my I, I was i was telling somebody today about like how there's just certain movies that when you come out of it like you just have that feeling of just like absolute excitement and definitely like coming out of this i felt that yeah. way um and it was tough because, you know, like you think now about like the Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, like binge watching where you can just like watch mm-hmm. something like in its entirety and how like a lot of us have lost the ability to watch serial television anymore and like see things like progress from week to week and wait. Sure. And this was, you know, Kill Bill was amazing. And then we had to wait, what, like six months? Yeah, something like that. It was roughly that. Because Kill Bill was, what, winter, late fall, winter of 03? Yeah, and this was And then spring. this is spring of 04, yeah, right. so several months. Yeah. And just to have it, like, exceed my expectations. Sure. and Yeah. 
and, and and I think you know we talked a little bit about some of this stuff. I think like last week, it's like I don't know if we talked about this movie specifically in terms of that, but it's like it's that overused phrase subversion of expectation that people like are keen right now of talking about with Tarantino, as if they figured out something new about him, right? Um, but I think it's one of his coolest ones that he does in this movie is that it's like because of the events of one, because of even the earlier in the movie with L, like you expect this knockdown drag out epic fight, like between the master assassin, Bill and right, his, his student star he, protege. Right. And when push comes to shove, it's not about that because it's really a love story in some right. ways. It's about two people that still, despite all of it, like, you know, it's like, uh, it's like, you know, the kind of shit that like you hear like therapists say, it's like, you know, learning the idea that you can um that you can understand where somebody's coming from and still be mad at them. To its extreme in this case, I think. It's like, you know, I think there's a level of understanding the other in some ways. Right. But still knowing that no one of them has to not walk away. Sure. From this. And it's like even after she kills him. He knows that once he stands up and takes, is it three steps? Five. Five steps. Once he takes five steps, he's going to die. Like, she's sitting there crying because she's killed him. Yeah, you look good. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, um, what she says, she say something like, you know, do you, do you hate me? And it's like, he says, no, I don't, I don't hate you. Like, you know, Beatrice, it's like. I love you. Right. You're, you're, you're my, you're, favorite you're, you're, you're right. You're one of my favorite people. You're my favorite person. And it's like, uh, it's, it's amazing. Like yeah. that, that whole ending is just so damn amazing. It's funny because like the thing that I love the most about once upon a time in Hollywood is the fact that it's, in my opinion, his most like straightforward and human film. Like it really mm-hmm. is firmly grounded in reality without any of like, Whatever, like the tricks and sure. both like linguistic and like visual. And this is his most fantastic movie. Like it's the one that is definitely the most removed from reality. But I think it's also like, not to split hairs about Jackie Brown, but I think it's also his most like human movie next to Once Upon a Time, like where the characters are so fully fleshed and formed and they're not, even though they're all like, larger than life caricatures they're not at the same time they're people with (laughs) likes and dislikes and i don't know like i just i really i I really enjoy the way that all of those characters are written um and definitely the bride and bill are just like probably his two best fantastical characters and i like as a parallel i think that you know cliff and rick are his best like human characters Mm -hmm. and Oh, it's just interesting because like that's where his dynamic is the best, I think, when it's not about where it just really is about the human interaction between two people that know each other really well and have that like, you know, because seriously, the best parts in Pulp Fiction are um Jules and Vincent, like right. talking to each other. Sure. Or um Butch and uh what's her name? Fabian. Um, yeah, Fabian, like, yeah. talking to each other. I mean, it, that's when he, like, gets it the best is when it's two people, like, just interacting and mm-hmm. not when it's, you know, 
like he does the over the top stuff well enough and like sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but man like i just like he's so good at like writing that kind of dialogue is, and, yeah. right. like in a brief period of time getting you to understand so much about the deep connection between two people just by inside jokes and quick dialogue and like mm. little things and like without having to spend all that time like building huge backstories God, and this stuff. is the third time we've talked about this and i still haven't mentioned it the michael parks right as the pimp Esteban at the end. viejo yeah. like is because that's one of those things where like you know I've seen it mentioned, like, people are like, you know, well, here's a wasted, like, you know, six minutes. This is him being a megalomaniac. Some people call him that he's right. overindulging and everything. And it's like, look, maybe maybe it is too long. I don't know. But it's like, Michael Parks playing that character is, first of all, like, fantastic as a, just, just a five-minute, six-minute performance. But I don't think people understand. It's like, her going and tracking him down... To find out where Bill is and hearing the backstory that this guy raised Bill like this pimp and, you know, and that he and then there's like the hints of violence that he cuts women like, you know, but I wouldn't have shot you. Right. I I wouldn't have shot you. I would just cut your face a little like or whatever. Like smoking that long cigarette. Yes. And his eyes fluttering because he's old, like, you know, like that old man, like eye flutter thing. You know, I don't think that's... So, I don't look at it like that. I don't think it's an old man eye flutter. I think it's him, like, batting his long eyelashes because he's always just trying to woo the women to, like, come to his side. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. He does it a few times, like, throughout the scene. Like, um, I Or maybe that's, like, an affective memory Like a, like a tick, like almost. Like, right. you know, yeah. But it's, like, something I see with old people sometimes where, like, they kind of, like, close their eye, like, rapidly sometimes, like, when they're, like, thinking or... Um, but it's like the end of that scene is the important thing is like where she's like, you know, why are you helping me? Because she's disgusted now by what she's seen with like the cut faces and everything. And he's like, how is he ever going to see you again? Like, you know, it's like, he knows that it's like, he's either right. sending her to her death or he's killing Bill. who He helped raise to some degree. But it's like, it's the sick old pimp is the only one that realizes it's a love story. Yeah. But that pulls, that, that pulls a lot from Tarantino's love of like, like the Italian, like 70s, like Giallo and like Mm -hmm. action stuff Mm -hmm. where it's like these people that live these fast, dangerous lives can like only they can understand like the love that you can feel for someone else that can also cause you to like kill them basically. And like. Of anyone, this guy that's been a criminal for his right. like he's the guy that life. understands love and violence, right? Mm. Yeah, that's good. Because you you know actually, and Bud understands it too. Like Bud knows Bill's true feelings, mm-hmm. and Bud knows his own feelings towards Bill and everything. Because that's why he keeps the sword. The person that doesn't understand it is L because she's in love with Bill, right. and is put out because Bill's always loved Beatrix mm-hmm. more. Right. So. I don't yeah. know. There's a, there, there's so much great like nuance in that movie. And yeah. yeah. Again, like I've seen this movie a lot mm-hmm. and I've never not enjoyed myself watching it. Mm-hmm. Like it's still like even, and I, I didn't watch it for this podcast cause I watched it for the 2004 sequels. I watched them both. Right. Um, 
but like it it's still like I get excited every time I watch it like I feel great about like film and stuff after I mm-hmm. see it so it's it's just yeah. it's a fantastic movie yeah. I mean I in my opinion like his absolute masterpiece and mm. I don't know if he'll ever like make anything else that good that's why I kind of so just to finish up the Tarantino talk like forever maybe until like we talk about something else <laughs> till his 10th movie right um so they broke like I dislike the hateful eight quite a bit but on netflix they have a broken up the director's cut i guess into four mm, give or take hour-long segments and it actually really makes me want to watch it because i think it's more digestible that way and i kind of would like to see like because this is his you know doing these two movies and telling this one large story between two movies i think it it lets him flesh out these characters most i would love to see him do like something as a serial on like one of the streaming services and i mm. he probably would never do it but man it would be fantastic yeah he's not a fan of those streaming services either i know but man it's so good like yeah. that idea like i when he releases because you, you you were telling me today that there's like an hour of extra footage that was shot for once upon a time two two hours it's well you four, said it's four hours total four right? and a half hours oh, okay yeah so two hours i'd love to see yeah like that broken up into like a five part series like sure. you know and just watch it yeah. in small chunks like I think that would be fantastic yeah, yeah I love this movie if, yeah. if you haven't seen Kill Bill you should right. see yeah. Kill Bill I think there's only a very small portion of people who have just certain like personal things that they would find offensive in this movie like the violence and the language mm. and you know I mean he's Definitely, like, there's some uncomfortable conversations about Tarantino being a misogynist, I think, because of the way he will definitely brutalize female characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, it's him, you know, and either you can mm-hmm. accept him for what he is or you won't. And right. I think if you can, that this is, like, the best example of his yeah. filmmaking talent. And, I mean, hey, there's there's a lot of arguments on um, out there about that, I know, like, uh, criticism, but... I've also seen a lot of feminist critics who sit there and say, actually, that's kind of true equality. I mean, a hundred percent, but I'm not a woman. So for me to like, sure. I'm under, under, right. right. And that's why I'm putting it in their mouths and not necessarily mine. So it's like, Although, as even, man, even among feminist critics, there's a, there's a debate about that. Like I, it, it, it makes me uncomfortable. Sure. And I saw, I think it's supposed to, I watched once upon a time again with a woman today. And one of the only things that she didn't complain about in the movie was the violence towards the women at, mm. at the end of that movie, mm. which to me was like a little over the top, of course especially when he's bashing in the redhead's face Yes, over like six different surfaces in the house. Like right. it's so excessive. Yeah, 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 right. And he pulls her back at one point and you can see like her exposed skull. Oh, like absolutely. It's, it's yeah, disgusting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And you just think like, all right, Tarantino, like, mm-hmm. did you really need to go that far? Yeah. But again, like, I mean, the point of that is like he's completely dismantling the myth and the sure. allure of the Manson yeah, right, family right. and just making him a joke. But anyway. Okay. Um, so that's our episode for the night. Uh, remember, if uh, you have any ideas for a list, uh, feel free to contact us at twoguys5movies at gmail.com. Yeah, you can also um, contact us on Facebook. Uh, you can like our page. Uh, this is where we put out the podcast through Podbean is on our page. Um, I, I try like usually like once a week, anytime I see lists of any, you know, any famous directors or anything like yeah. that, I try to put those out there like of other things. 
Um, some of those lists, sometimes I wonder, like, I'd like to hear what you think of them sometimes, because you probably despise some of them. So, Criterion mm-hmm. does a thing where it's a, a filmmaker's favorite five movies mm-hmm. that I actually like a lot. Yeah. And usually, because usually the lists that you link, like, some of them are okay. Some of them are kind of clickbaity to me. And, like, I love the way the Criterion does it, just like letting somebody sit down and, like, they link you to their five movies that they have and they give, like, a description of why they like them the most. And it's always, like, really influential yeah. directors and actors and whatnot. Yeah. Man, I wish their streaming service was better. Like, I subscribe to it, but. They, they just, they don't understand, like, how to do a streaming service. It's really upsetting. Yeah, that's unfortunate. You should see if you can get it on your um, smart TV, because I can't get it through my PS4, which is where I stream everything. Hmm. I'm sure I can. Yeah, I'll try, I'll try it. I haven't seen an app for it anywhere. Huh. I mean, aside from, like, the app you get off the app store, so. I'll check it out for here. Um, so, thank you, everybody, for liking our posts, sharing yep. our posts, um, like I said, I, I've said this every week pretty much for a while, but like those are the things that really help us the most is to like and share on Facebook, is to rate, rate and subscribe um, through your podcatcher app, um, whatever that is. So um, thank you for all that. If yep. you can help us out, please do so. And thank you for listening and have a great weekend. Yeah, have a good night.